In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Tom Sidlachik, and we've got a great show lined up for you. We're talking about a common affliction amongst board gamers, the shelf of shame. We each randomly selected a board game for the show, and we came up with Creature Comforts, Cleos, and Valeria Card Kingdom. Joining me on this impressive journey are the Hobby Box, Joe Burns, Hey-o. and the Ox, Adam Wilson. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Adam, you recently made the unfathomable mistake of inviting me to a board gaming weekend with your brother, your best friend, and my hobby box. Looking back, where would you say exactly that your life went wrong? Uh, Well, Tom, you can thank a couple of the past attendees for allowing the bar to be set pretty low. Um, Maybe we can cover that topic, though, on a a future unfiltered, seeing that this is a family-friendly podcast. (laughs) Well, in all seriousness, we played 15 different games at the Board Game Weekend. What was your standout title from that experience? So for me, there was a ton of great games played. Um, Lots of new games were played that weekend. But for me, I super enjoyed getting Ark Nova finally to the table and playing that. I I did really enjoy that experience and definitely want more um, time with that game as well. We talked about Ark Nova on the New Year New Games, I believe, 2022 podcast in January of 2022. Um, this was the first time you had actually played it? Yes, it's the first time I had the opportunity to play it. I think it helps that the one friend we had um, already had played it many, many times, so it was a really easy teach that would just save me time and effort for having to read the rule book. Awesome. And Ark Nova, you're building a zoo, essentially, right? It's kind of like a tableau builder, and your actions get more powerful the less you use them or the longer you wait to use them. Um, what kind of a strategy did you employ, and how did you perform? Well, I think we all kind of didn't know what we were doing except for the one person teaching who's played many many playthroughs he tried giving us tips but i think for the most part we just enjoyed kind of exploring the game a little bit messing with the the actions um i'm trying to think back here i I can't even really remember my specific strategy but i kind of just fell into i think getting like predators which is a card type so i had bears um I was just kidding a bear zoo, I guess. So thanks oh, to You're talking about like predatory animals, not like Correct. You know, invisible, camouflaged, shoots <laughs> things with lasers. Predator. Well, you don't know if I had those in my zoo or not. I, I, I had an open something. cage. We that just don't know if they were there or not. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Burnsy, your standout title from Board Game Weekend. It's Downforce. I love that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like wow, that is a strong game. No, um I, I mine. I don't know. I went back and forth a lot on this, but I think my favorite was Ark Nova also. Um, I won that game too, so that was pretty cool. Um, and this was pretty intense competition. Like, this isn't a cupcake board gaming weekend at all. Like, I finished no. in last probably 75% of the games. I managed to steal a couple of victories, but, like, it is intense competition. Yeah, well, and especially when you have, like, Adam's brother, who's just, like, a savant at making economy economies in board games like just figuring it out and manipulating it to the point where he just has the most victory points most of the time and so so there is that too but uh but yeah Ark Nova was a lot of fun I really enjoyed that game I enjoyed pretty much everything we played though I can't think of anything 
that I really didn't like. So that's always good too. Now for me, it was Planet Unknown. Planet Unknown is a uh, like a space exploration game. You have your Tetris style pieces. Each turn, you're going to draw one of those pieces, and then you have a map in front of you, and you get to fill in all of the spaces on this grid of your map with your Tetris pieces, and you get points for completing rows and columns and for performing some other objectives we played it twice once where everyone had symmetrical things where we're all trying to do the same things and then once that was asymmetrical where we each had our own unique corporation with its own unique like resource board and our planets were all lined different and each one had kind of a different shtick and i was just absolutely charmed by that game planet unknown was awesome and it is probably going to be the first thing I ever kickstart because they're going to do a reprint and expansion. It depends on the price point. Like I'm not, I love Planet Unknown, but I'm not going to pay two hundred and fifty dollars for Planet Unknown. So hopefully it comes in somewhere lower than that. Yeah, I, it's hard. It's hard to tell these days. Like the 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 finances of board games and how much they're going to cost is varying wildly at this point. But um, you know the price point of a few years ago, where it's like the max you would see on a Kickstarter would be like for the base game like a hundred dollars and the all-in would be like three hundred dollars is like that's like out the window now so it's it's really hard to tell like how much they'll have in that and then yeah what their cost would be for either the base game or for you know the all-in with the expansion that they're launching and i'll say this i'm much more likely to kickstart something once i've played it like i can say that with one hundred thousand million billion percent certainty of like right now like if you had explained plan alone to me i'm like yeah that sounds interesting. Am I going to kickstart it? No, no. But now having played it, I'm like, oh, this could be the one. Now, the, the the impulse to avoid, though, or to try to avoid or be careful of is when you play a game and you like it. And like, so it's like we went to a gaming weekend where there are 15 games played. You don't want to come back for the gaming weekend. You know, I own two of those. I need to buy the other 13 <laughs> right away. Uh, you know, that's an impulse that also gets really tricky as well. Yeah, it's tough. And like I go in with a mindset like I love playing games with you guys and I love playing games with you, Adam. But we don't play games all that often. We have our monthly robot club. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, we'll get together outside that. So I'm thinking what is something that I would potentially play at home with my wife with Phoenix uh, that we could both enjoy and so that was really the lens I was looking at so like uh, we played Mosaic at Board Game Weekend and Mosaic was awesome and I would love to play Mosaic mm-hmm. again I'm not going to play that with my wife so that one's <laughs> that one's out of the equation for me so I guess I'm focused on family accessible <clears throat> games or at least partner accessible games you don't, you don't think you could set aside five hours on a weekend day to just you know do a big civilization building game like Mosaic with Phoenix my children would literally destroy the house we would live in a pile of rubble from that point on (laughs) but while we're speaking of kickstarter and small budget things uh burns you've been playing final fantasy 16 which just released this week it released on thursday we are recording this on saturday morning you have not only played but streamed 20 hours 20 plus hours of final fantasy 16 yeah it's like 20 ish hours now granted i've taken breaks here and there and so maybe my actual gameplay is like 18 hours of it um, or 19 hours, but um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I'm, according to the PlayStation 5, I'm 47% of the way through the story of the game. Interesting. And so we'll see how that goes, but so far I'm really enjoying it. It's uh, Enjoying it? Game of the Year material? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be in the conversation of Game of the Year. I haven't played many of the other things that have come out this year. I mean, I probably won't play Tears of the Kingdom. That's kind of... You're going to have all sorts of different camps. This is going to be a crazy year when it comes to Game of the Year at the end of the year because there are so far at least three legitimate contenders in Diablo 4, Tears of the Kingdom, and and Final Fantasy 16. Plus, later in the year, you have the new Assassin's Creed, 
Um, oh, people also like Jedi Survivor, but I have a feeling that that's going to get hammered because of the launch on PC being like near unplayable. Mm. Um, but then you have Spider-Man 2 coming out this fall. Um, oh my gosh, I can't even think. But there's like two other like really big games that people are waiting to play that come out this fall as well. And so it's going to be a crazy competitive year for Game of the Year this year. It feels a lot like 2018 where we had God of War, we had Spider-Man, and we had a third game which wasn't on the same tier. Was that Breath of No, Breath of the Wild was the year before that. Yeah. That okay. was also a big year. Is Breath of the Wild. It was Persona 5. It was uh, uh, Mario. I think there was one other really big game that came out in 2017 also. Do you think in your heart of hearts that anything can unseat Zelda for Game of the Year? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because when you hear some people talk about Zelda that were huge Breath of the Wild fans, like I've heard some people say, and it's baffling to me because the initial things I heard were just like completely glowing about the game. But I've heard some people categorize it and say that it really should have just been an expansion of Breath of the Wild that doesn't feel like a new game. Now, granted, I don't know what their expectations were coming into that. So I feel like it's not hitting as hard as Breath of the Wild did for people, probably because people already knew what to expect um, coming into it a little bit. And there was some stuff, there was granted some systems that were very new for it, but it's one of those things where I think people, it didn't like jump up as much as Breath of the Wild did for them. So I can see it getting overshadowed by everything else coming out after it. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. This is a year when Spider-Man 2 comes out. I'm on D4 as game of the year. D4, Diablo 4 is freaking awesome. The couch co-op is unbelievable. I love the character skill trees and how they mm-hmm. set up the progression. Like, they made the action RPG uh, fun again. Like, not yeah. that I ever dislike the genre. I've always had an affinity for it. But this is, like, awesome. And, like, when I'm not playing D4, I am thinking about yeah. D4. And when Phoenix and I aren't playing D4, we are talking about D4. It's a, it's awesome. Diablo yeah. is phenomenal. I mean, I'm. It's it's going to be curious. Like I, after I finish Final Fantasy 16, I'm going to be playing Diablo four. Uh, I will play Spider Man this fall, and so it's like those three games. It's going to be a legitimate conversation as to what I think um, I'm going to feel by the time I get through that. Mm-hmm. And game of the year might be different than my favorite like experience of the year to actually like you know go through a game from start to finish um which maybe is more so like story of the year i guess so i don't know it'll be interesting to see how i feel about all of these games once once i've played them all it'll be interesting to see if i'm still on d4 after playing my beloved spider-man like 2018 was so good that's a high bar to try to exceed so i mean i hope it's awesome i know my favorite character is going to be in it so here's hoping it is great Before we jump into our show, we want to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Check out their website at premierhealthmn.com. That's premierhealthmn, as in minnesota.com. If you enjoy Outside is Overrated, please support the show at patreon.com slash OIO. That's patreon.com slash OIO. Your support goes towards the media that we consume for the show, equipment, and other expenses. If you enjoy our glowing personalities, you can follow us all on social. Email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. That's overratedpod at gmail.com. You can follow Adam at Ox's Auditorium on Instagram, follow Burns at HobbyBoxBurns on Twitter, and twitch.tv slash HobbyBoxBurns. And you can follow me, your intrepid host, at Tom Sidlachik OIO on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also follow the show at Facebook.com slash Outside is Overrated. 
The original idea for this episode was to take all of the games in our combined board game collections, put them in a randomizer, and randomly select three games to play and discuss. In practicality, that was a logistical nightmare. <laughs> so I asked each of you and myself to pick ten games, and we randomly chose one off of each of our lists. Adam, what were some of the thoughts as you put your list together? Yeah, so my list had two kind of major requirements. So the first requirement was kind of one of my choosing, I'll just say. So that was a game I hadn't played. I'm really trying to get through the games I haven't played. We talked about that on New Year New Games, that this year we were going to focus on playing the games that we owned. Yep, and, and I feel like we're doing pretty good. The game we can help knock out a lot on my list, so that was great. Um, but the second kind of caveat to my selection was that it had to be a game that wasn't boxed up because we're in the middle of moving and I have there's just no space where we're temporarily living right now while we build a house um, to host my large collection. So I would say 90% of my game collection is in boxes currently in my parents' basement. So um, I had to have accessibility to the games I selected as well. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I consider you my heaviest board game friend. You introduced me to Burn Cycle. You love chip theory games and all these meaty, heavy, brain-burning games. So, of course, your list yielded the super cutesy, family-friendly, worker-placement game, Creature Comforts. What led to Creature Comforts finding a place in your hardcore collection? Yeah, so when purchasing games for my collection, I, I do try to fill different categories, if you will. So you have the classic case of different st strokes for different folks, right? But uh, I, as you stated, I do learn, lean towards heavy games personally. However, with my wife and my family, um, they don't they don't play those super heavy strategy games like I enjoy. So I do try to fill those different voids while I'm selecting uh, games. And Creature Comforts, I was hoping to be a stepping stone. I'm, I'm a big fan of Everdell, which is also a cutesy creature um, kind of tableau building game as well. Uh, but that is a little bit heavier than Creature Comforts. So this was a hope to have a stepping stone to teach my kids, hopefully get them into gaming and having those stepping stones to lead up to things I think is super important. We'll see how well it fit those uh, hopes and aspirations by Burnsy. In our New Year New Game podcast, you rank the top five most fun mechanics, and worker placement didn't make your list. Is it fair to say that you hated this game and all the cute little animals with a burning, fiery passion? Oh, the warped, warped memory of Tom. Everything um, I said was factually correct. You know, so, I mean, I enjoy worker placement games. I believe the reason why that wasn't on there, and I think that actually came up in there, because I think you brought that up during the podcast. Adam did. Yeah, and I was just like, I completely forgot about worker placement as a strategy. I I, I really enjoy worker placement games, and so, yeah, I, I, I definitely enjoyed Creature Comforts, so suck on that, Tom. <laughs> I will not. Creature Comforts is designed by Robert Taylor and published by Kids Table Board Gaming. It released in 2022. In Creature Comforts, you spend the spring, summer, and fall gathering different goods from the forest and spending them to collect items that will make your home more inviting while the world outside is covered in a layer of snow. Each round, you send family members out to various locations in an attempt to gain supplies. If they fall short of their goal, they'll learn a lesson and be better prepared next time, which is Burns' favorite mechanic. The family that has created the most comfortable den wins the game. Um, each turn you unveil the storyteller and the resources for the season, you spend, send your workers out to various areas, you spend dice to gather resources, the main player will roll four dice and each player rolls two of their own, so there's a split dice pool for each turn. You gather resources and you build things. 
At the end of the game, you count victory points and congratulate Adam on another victory. <laughs> this game has a Board Game Geek rating of 7.5. I thought we'd start with our overall thoughts about worker placement games. Like, Burns, we already talked about how much you hate them. So, Adam, <laughs> what are your feelings towards worker placement games? Yeah, I, I personally love worker placement games. Um, I'd say maybe three, four years ago, I'd say that was probably my favorite mechanic, but I've come to just love all sorts of different mechanics and the mashing of those. I think one of the strengths of worker placement, though, is it can create a competitive game without the need for direct conflict, right? So the biggest conflict you see in a lot of worker placement games is, well, obviously there's only so many people that can go to a certain space, right? So you just have to pivot. You're still getting an action. You're still being able to do something. Um, and also just like taking that card or that resource maybe that someone else also wanted is about as, I mean, for the most part, I, obviously I know there's exceptions, but as worker placement as like a general whole, that's kind of where they sit a lot is I'm just taking that card. I'm not necessarily specifically attacking a person or something like that. So I feel like it, it can create a decently competitive, but not like stressful, tense situation for a competitive game. I really like how Viticulture has the one big meeple that you have that allows you to double up on a space that somebody has already taken. So Burnsy, to actually not put words in your mouth and let you speak for yourself again, yeah. your history and your thoughts towards worker placement games. Yeah, I mean, I've played a ton of different worker placement games. I enjoy them quite a bit. And I guess I should have set up the mechanic a little bit. Worker placement means that there's spaces on the board where you put one of your meeples or one of your workers and you get a thing for that. There's mm -hmm. only so many spaces and you put one of your meeples there um, to try to maximize what your toolbox or what you're able to do. Yep, and usually one of the mechanics that goes along with that is that you're usually unlocking extra workers as the game goes on. Some of them kind of turn that on your head where you lose workers as the game goes on. There's there's all sorts of different ways as the as you know games have been developed and people have been like, you know, picking at mechanics and trying to find new sort of evolutions of them that they that they find ways to work. But but it makes sense because it's like, you know, it's kind of like it it mirrors real life. It's like I need to get something, I go to this space to get it. I need to go get food. I go to the grocery store to get food, you know? Yeah, um, we get to emulate the power of fantasy of going to root for mushrooms in the forest. Yes, yes, yes. Or, or going to uh, going to buy, uh, you know, a random assortment of four things. And, oh, if somebody got there first and they bought the one you wanted, then you're just sitting there holding your money and being like, well, what the hell do I want now? <laughs> you know, it's just... Just like real life, <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I don't. I really, I really enjoy worker placement games. Um, there's lots of games that it used to, at least uses a portion of that mechanism as the base of their game. So I don't play a ton of worker placement games. Like I, we played Viticulture for the show, and I really enjoyed that. I love Lords of Waterdeep. We played the direct sequel to Lords of Waterdeep at Board Game Weekend. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. With mm -hmm. the X Men theme, basically, mm -hmm. basically the same game, right, yeah, guys? Pretty yeah, much. Yeah, of course, it sure is. <laughs> People putting this is Tom's favorite pastime is putting words in my mouth or misremembering something I've said and just completely distorting what it, what it is that I actually said. Yeah, don't forget, just generally irritating you. That's uh, <laughs> so Adam, this was your game, it came off of your list. What was your favorite element of creature comforts? Yeah, so obviously, like the art's kind of cutesy, so it's like a great family game for that, it's easy to teach. And then it, it's a really good intro to worker placement because it, it actually eliminates one of the conflicting things of worker placement where everyone can place on any of the spots. You just can't place two of your creatures on one spot. And then turn order gets to be important. Like if there's a improvement that you want to build for your 
den. Like, the first player gets to choose the first improvement based on the die they committed to it. So, like, if you really wanted to build the uh, the barrel sauna, but somebody beats you to it, well, good yep. luck. You're just standing there holding your money. Well, and also an interesting aspect of that, too, is if you know you're going later and somebody else is already there... You're kind of banking that, oh, okay, well, if they buy one of these things, the one thing I want will be within, like, the range that I have for the die that I want to commit to it. So so there's that aspect of it, too, where it's like, oh, okay, both Tom and Adam are there. I'm going to be going after both of them. So then this thing that's at a six right now, I could just use a four die probably for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's also there's also that aspect of it, too, which, which adds just another layer of strategy with it so burns i think one of your favorite elements of this game tied to the components yeah the meeples and the resources um are really nice and fun to play with like one thing that i've found the more that i've played games like it's it's it doesn't you don't think it should matter but it does entirely like for some reason playing scythe with all of the, you know, little components that look like oil barrels or look like, you know, whatever the other bricks are, or, or iron and have heft to them that are like that, like that, that's awesome. And that adds to the play experience. And so with, with this game, the, all of the little meeples of the different um, animal creatures that you're playing as are really cool. Um, they look, they look like what they're supposed to look like. Um, and then, yeah, each of the resources looks like what you're collecting. Um, and I think that's, that's a really neat, um, it was really neat to put the money into that because you get that out of the play experience. Um, I think you get more out of the play experience than the added cost of having those, you know, fancier looking items instead of just, you know, cardboard circles or yeah, cardboard circles. And then the typical like person with two legs and two arms and a head standing somewhere that's your normal meeple you know yeah i can really buy that i'm a raccoon family with my human meeple yep exactly one mechanic that i particularly enjoyed in this game was the lesson learns mechanic and burns i know that you're on the opposite end of the spectrum (laughs) for me as this but basically if you put a worker someplace and you don't end up getting the benefit from that space because you also have to commit die if you run out of die or your roll doesn't work out just right you get a little lesson learned token which is just a little circle with a plus and a minus on it and then on a future turn you can spend that to manipulate your die up or down one and it was a very forgiving mechanic and it was extremely useful for me so burns why did you hate that utility with a burning fiery passion um once we get to weaknesses and our overall thoughts of the game i will go into more detail on oh, this. all right well it's a great system and you are wrong my friend <laughs> <laughs> but one of the uh another one of the interesting mechanics of this game was the split dice pool each turn every player rolls their two family dice which are color-coded just to them and then the main player will roll four dice that everybody uses on their turn so you have a total of six dice that you end up using burns have you played a game with like a split dice pool mechanic before not that i can think of off the top of my head um and and i don't know that there's there's ever really been a game that's and maybe there has been a game that's mixed like a similar dice rolling type of aspect along with how you place your workers um I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I could be wrong. But I think it's really neat because you roll your two dice, and you're, so you know what two of your values are. Then you have to take your meeples and put them out to the different places. And the places, the spaces are going to cost a, a, either a type of dice or a combination of dice. For example, the space is. you might have a base die plus one plus one, which means you need to lay three consecutively higher dice, so like a three, four, five, or four, five, six. That's a risk putting a meeple there because you don't exactly know how the communal dice are going to work out. Yeah, so you're deciding where to put your meeples out, and then the final four dice are rolled. And so it's it's a really interesting kind of mechanic, and, and it adds an element of push your luck where you're just sort of like, okay, 
I'm really going to risk it to try to get this thing. And I don't know if the four dice that, uh, you know, Adam's going to roll are going to allow me to get it, but I kind of need this resource. And sometimes you benefit off of it. I had like three consecutive terms where I got burned because I, I needed books and, uh, the places I went to books, I didn't get the dice that I needed for it, but you know, that's them's the breaks. Should have learned your lessons, Burns. Hey, I got lessons learned, but yeah. <laughs> Strengths and weaknesses of the game. Adam, we'll start with you again. This is your game. How do you feel this is as an intro to worker placement? Like I said, that's kind of why I got it, is like just looking at the game on Kickstarter, I felt like it was going to be a really good stepping stone. I think... It and in of, execution, did it meet that expectation? I think so. So, you know, like I said previously there's kind of two big elements of worker placement that kind of can make a game competitive right it, it really eliminates one of those so it's that here why don't we play this game you know you can go to your space every time mm-hmm. for sure right so like i said i'll, I'll just keep on comparing it to everdell because it's like that cutesy it's you know, impossible to escape those comparisons to, it's like any game that's yep. in the from software mold where you're slaying enemies gathering souls and spending those to level up like it's impossible to escape the comparison mm-hmm. right so you, you can use creature comforts as a great intro game like you know here we're gonna play this game you know everyone obviously gets to go where they want to um i think one big thing was i think a couple of us struggled counting just dice on a basic level um because i think one thing we uh all learned probably the hard way except for maybe joe was that the fact that you only have six dice total so if your meeple spaces added up to more than six dice you're for sure not getting one i definitely made that mistake yeah we all made that mistake at least once i feel like nope i never made that mistake (laughs) um so so it has great intro stuff the art's really awesome for family mechanics it's not hard to learn and you can honestly walk people through a turn without mm-hmm. feeling like you're taking advantage of them so mm-hmm. so so easy to learn burns is that a strength or a weakness for you in a game you also enjoy big heavy experiences but i feel like you also play with a very diverse set of other players at different times yeah i mean easy to learn is always a good thing um i, I because it, it feels like it feels like the first five times you play any board game, you're teaching it. And, and so the easier that it is to try to onboard somebody, um, just the better it is to get through that first game and maybe play a second game where everybody feels like they're on an equal footing. Uh, so I think that's I think that's hugely important. The other thing I think makes this a really good intro game, uh, and it's because of the same mechanic that you're talking about, that people can't block you from going to a space. If you're a kid and you're trying to figure things out, you know, instead of like really trying to figure out what to do, I'm just going to put my things where dad put his things. And then it's like, oh, okay. And then I'll see if I can make this work or not. So it's, it's also, it's one of those things, oh, everybody's at this one space. So I'll go there too. You know, if you can't think of, or you're not really sure how to think strategically about where to go, you just go where all the other meeples are. It makes it, it's a way to make it, I think, easier so that you don't get caught in that kind of thought paralysis. Not that I know that a kid would do that, to that level that some of the people, some of the adults that we play with do, but uh, want to throw shade at anyone in particular? No, 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 you know, just just in general, just in general. It's a, it, I mean, we all have our moments where we have to deep think about things. So that yeah, are you, you talking know, about Casey or Dunham or both? I, I'm just talking in general. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. that in sounds general, like a Casey, like someone of chiropractic experience. And uh, no. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's amazing uh, how slow chiropractors are with their currency <laughs> games. <laughs> Truly remarkable. I agree with you, Burns. I think it's a major, major strength that this game is easy to get new players up and running. Like, I explained it to Phoenix, and I showed it, and she's like, 
wide-eyed and i'm like oh well we'll see how this goes but after like the first turn of rolling the dice like it really clicked really well um i think that the family and village dice the split dice will make for some really interesting commitments and i think a major strength of this game is each turn you're flipping over a new traveler which gives like a special rule for that season and sometimes a special thing you get to do at the end of turn quick aside and inside thing we totally butchered the uh blue jay when we played that game because the Blue Jay allows you to visit a uh, any space on the board, but you have to spend the village dice to do it. And I think we just went to any place oh. on the board and took what we wanted, like a bunch of marauding uh, hedgehogs in my case. Uh, if I remember correctly, Tom, it was mostly you who couldn't get the Blue Jay out of your head. Because, that is true. Because you were trying to trigger that ability every single turn after yeah. he was already gone. Or she, I guess. I don't know what the Blue Jay is. But them. Them. Yeah. It's a them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah... That was, yeah, the first time we did it, we thought we had to go to a place we hadn't gone previously. I think we spent the dice, but then the second time we played, I think we got it correctly where we did do it correctly. You get to go to any place you want, still just using the the community dice, not your, your home dice. I feel like we didn't use the dice. I have no idea. Tom I might not have used the anymore. dice because I think he's still learning the Blue Jay, but maybe next time we play, we'll get that one correct. All right, let's crack it out right now. Yeah, all right. We'll be back in an hour and 15 minutes. Um, Burns, I know that we can draw definitive conclusions after two playthroughs. Do you feel like this game is like Tapestry where you have to pound the tech tree to win, or do you think there are multiple viable paths to victory? I mean, I, I still think that there's multiple paths to victory in Tapestry too. And Disagree vehemently. You've experienced that, but you just won't admit it. Um, but anyway, um, it seems like after playing it a couple of times that there are multiple ways that you can get to victory. Now there's certain, there's certain cards maybe that help you stock things up. So I think like the pantry is kind of powerful that way. Um, as long as you can collect the resources that you need to really like stock it up. Um, but yeah, I think there's lots of different directions that you can go in to get your points and, you know, Obviously, having the right mix of a few of those is probably the best way to do it. Um, there's also, um, excuse me, there's also cards that you can get um, that if somebody else is going hard in one direction, you can benefit off of that. So, like, there'll be um, buildings that you can build that'll give you victory points for every type of card someone's collecting. So, so like, I leaned into food in both of our playthroughs. There was a specific improvement that gave a victory point for each food card every other player has. Yeah. And there's something similar. I think the sauna is gives you a victory point for every cold weather item that yeah. another player has. And I has. had one for every lighting uh, item that everybody had. And so I think that's a really cool way to go about it as well. Um, and I think that's awesome. And then, yeah, the rules being straightforward, they made, made sense. We had to look up a couple of things, mm -hmm. but it wasn't anything major. And it was a quick gameplay experience. Like after we knew what was going on, granted, I think we were onboarding somebody new the second time we played, mm -hmm. but it still went relative, still went quite quick. Um, and so, so yeah, it's really good to be like kind of that palate cleanser type of thing. Sure. It's cutesy and it might not work in some groups, but, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think, I think it's a really good game that way. Well, you said palate cleanser and now the earth is lava burns. The earth is lava. You have to choose one. What's going to be our palate cleanser for the rest of our lives, downforce or creature comforts? Oh, that's a good question. They're two very, I mean, they're two very different games. I feel like. I feel like if you're playing with like a mix of people, um, creature comforts would probably be better. Uh, if you're playing with like a bunch of guys, like a racing game kind of is 
like, oh, okay, this is easy, you know, make my car move, and no, I get to move my car, I'm Tom. Um, I'm crafty. <laughs> yes. So, um, I don't know. You can have both. There's the answer. Have both and pick it. Nope. Pick whatever you feel like. The earth is lava. One has to be pushed into <laughs> I, lava. I choose the lava then, damn it. <laughs> I don't want to learn live with your ultimatums anymore, Tom. <laughs> oh, God, birds just quit the podcast. <laughs> We've talked about you a lot. the chosen one. <laughs> I had the high ground. <laughs> Adam, we've talked a lot about the strengths of your game, Creature Comforts. Yep. Is there anywhere where this game struggled for you? Yeah. So as I do tend to le- lean towards like the heavy, complicated brain burners, the thing that I guess a weakness for me and what then I would see within this game is I feel like the replayability for me would be low. I feel like after a while of playing 10 games i've seen all the strategies i've seen the combos you can do it might get redundant for me um so i guess my biggest hope would be hey maybe we can quickly like transition this to everdell because i know everdell has a ton of replayability Mm -hmm. um but that's really the biggest weakness i saw in it so you're gonna make a list of everyone that you care about in your life get them all through creature comforts once and then call this game from your <laughs> Collection. Um, it, it definitely could happen. There's definitely some foreshadowing to calling, I guess, coming up here. But um, I'm glad that Burns and I were on that list. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely no game is. There's not a lot of games that I would say are safe in my collection. Um, I, I do try to keep it modest, but we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Yeah. I mean, just as long as you go that way about it, not the other way, where you play creature comforts with different people and then call them from their life. Because <laughs> um, then, then you're a serial killer and we're going to have to call the authorities. But... Right. Well, I'll just say, for the future, I'm not taking any options off the table. Right? So... <laughs> Bernsey, is it fair to say that you believe this game is a masterpiece, absolutely flawless, and that you found no weaknesses in our time with creature comforts? And I think overall, it's actually a really good game. And, it, you know, it's easy for, you know, being a, what, middle-aged man, you know, I play lots of games and look at this and it's like, what's this cutesy art box, stupid crap. If I want to be a hedgehog, I'll be Sonic for crying out loud. Yeah, but I think it's it has some similarities to Wingspan in that sense, where there's a lot more to the game than, like, you just judge from the box or from the theme, right? So I think there's a lot more that you can do with it um, to enjoy it, as long as you can get past some of that cutesiness. Um, I think one of the things, like, mechanically in the game that is tricky, and, you know, it's not unique to this game, but sometimes if you're looking for certain types of cards, it, it can be a slog to try to, if they're not coming up face up so you can grab them, just like draw through cards, get crap in your hand and get rid of them. Like that can be a little bit tedious for being one of the main aspects that you need to be able to get victory points. Especially in like your first playthroughs, like you draw bread and it's like, oh, plus two if you have soup. It's like, okay, <laughs> how the frick do I get soup? Do I need a soup kitchen improvement? Are there soup yeah. cards in here? Like uh, the tea kettle matching with the rocking chair. And like there's some interesting synergies, but there is just no way to know going in like how likely you are to find the other part of that combo. Well, and it's even harder to try to find the other part of the combo when you mishear somebody. So it's like, I have stew. If I can find a bed, then I'm going to have extra points. And so it's like, I hope I find that bed before Tom and I can block him from getting it. Uh, but yeah, there's no bed in the game. <laughs> so that didn't work yeah. for me. But... And that's why you uh, drink rye while you're playing Creature Comforts. <laughs> I mean, I don't because I hate whiskey. But uh, uh, one of the other, this is a very specific thing, but the... 
I was playing as the I was playing as the raccoon. Yeah, raccoons. And their color and shape, once we were playing with somebody playing with squirrels, mm-hmm. were very similar to each other. And so it, it, I had to do like a triple take sometimes to make sure I was, you know, putting my dice like by the right thing and not like something someone else went on. And so that was one thing that was a little bit off. And Adam, they fixed that, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. The, well, they claimed that the color was off and that was the printer's fault and they got new meeples and honestly you can barely tell the difference between the two i i I personally had i been the designer made a much deeper red versus the purple and that was the 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 two colors that were conflicting is it was more of like a maroon versus yeah a darker and just the fact that they had a very similar shape also it would have been helpful if one would have had a little bit different shape to it somehow and you're neglecting to mention that the replacements that they sent you in the new color were all like busted and chipped like they clearly took the rejects from like the original production (laughs) line and just painted them a different color yeah so i think that's just the case for me from what i saw on social media other people had better experiences with it but but for me like it wasn't even worth like my time like i am an advocate for reaching out to the company making sure it's done right in certain cases um but i also do try to keep in mind some publishers aren't giants like simon or someone like that so in this case, the color difference wasn't huge to me. So to reach out and make them send me another replacement because I had some chipped meeples for a color that to me was still not distinguishable that great. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't worth the time and effort or or time and effort on their part as well. Right. Um, I heard great things about them replacing issues. So I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to like talk down about the company with, like in terms of that. But yeah, I just would have picked different colors, I think, for the, yeah. the player meeples there's nothing restricting it on why they had to choose those two similar no colors. anytime i think of squirrels i think purple and raccoons i think of maroon or yeah that might be flip-flopped but yes that's the color those creatures are correct so it has to be that way just like real life i struggled to find many weaknesses with this game i thought it was pretty solid uh, i thought one weakness was potentially that it's hard to know what resources you need like it's like okay well i can go in and i can get some mushrooms or i can get some yarn or i can get some rocks but like i don't fully have the full yeah. picture of what i actually need yeah and and sometimes then by the time you realize you need it oh those aren't available during this season oh yeah hopefully i can get them in the next season or hopefully it's not the end of the game and i'm not boned so yeah there is there is that aspect a little bit um but we have glossed over the worst mechanic of this game the, the 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 gravest weakness that this game has and that's lessons learned um they make the game baby mode. Like, this should be the dark souls of wildlife creatures where you're fighting over resources, and if you don't have the dice to do something, well, too bad, Mr. Hedgehog. You go back home, you get jack squat, <laughs> and you just deal with it. Real men don't learn lessons, so having a lessons learned mechanic in this game is garbage. And if you can't tell, I'm, I'm being facetious. No. But I did play the game both times. I think I used lessons learned once. Otherwise, I was I was just I tried not to gather them, and if I gathered them, I would not spend them because. Well, of course, you try not to gather them. It means things don't go wrong. Otherwise, you don't <laughs> learn a lesson. I I think you're silly for not using them, my friend. I know. One, just, it was just a fun hill to die on. <laughs> one pro tip that I have: stash books. If you ever play Creature Comforts and you have an opportunity to get books, get those books. You're gonna need them. You may not know how, but you're gonna find a way to use those to get extra victory points. Grab those books. Yeah, you gotta put them on your bookshelves. Or on uh, all of your food items if you're Tom. 
chasing food every time. Yeah, get your cookbooks, I guess, huh? Yep. Rachel Ray over here. Yeah, Rachel Tom Ray. Yeah. Turkish Trish, Rachel Tom Turkish Ray. Turkish Trish. Yeah. <laughs> Turkish Trish. <laughs> Adam, your final thoughts and takeaways on your game, Creature Comforts. Yeah, I feel like I'm just kind of a broken record at this point. I think it's a fun, cute intro to worker placement. For now, it's staying in the collection. Um, it's a great stepping stone, hopefully, to get my kiddo on board to like games and get her into more and eventually work up to an acrony where <laughs> where when you do screw up, you lose your power or you lose your resources or you just yeah. plain die when the yeah. planet blows up. So real game. We'll, we'll work up to the real games, as Joe calls them. But Ain't no lessons learned in an acrony. Yeah, lessons learned as you die in yeah. that one. So, um, you know, for that, you know, on that point too, I guess it's it's something that I hope I can use as an intro game, but I just hope it doesn't want to be played a thousand times because then I think I might get a little burned out on it, but... Yeah, it's it's a very enjoyable game, and uh, I think I feel like it would be good to have on hand when you're looking for a more lighthearted gaming session, you know, or you know, if you just you know spent three hours pummeling each other, okay, let's play this thing and just sort of relax a little bit and kind of kind of chill back down some. So I think it's good that way. What if you spent the last like twenty seven hours pummeling each other? That too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Checks out. I think this is a great onboarding game for other couples who don't play a lot of games. Like I use that lens a lot for board games too, but like Phoenix and I will often have another couple over and it's like, well, we want to introduce them to board games and maybe they're not ready for wingspan. I think this would be a great fit for that space. I also think it's a great option for games where you're playing with your partner and you don't want to kill each other. Creature comforts, fun stuff. Let's move on to some uh, serious stuff, guys. Mernsey, Adam, I was out in the forest rooting around for mushrooms and harvesting wheat recently. I had my wheelbarrow and lessons learned from earlier turns, so I had a premium haul to bring back to my burrow. But I worked so hard, I wrecked my back. Have you built any comforts that can help? Uh, Tom, I think you should check out Premier Health. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, and wheelbarrow injuries and more. I suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's Premier Health, MN is in Minnesota.com. Next, we poke around on Burnsy's Shelf of Shame and come up with Cleos, where Greek gods compete in a game of tactical card play, area control, and combat. Burnsy, what were some of the other games that you had on your list? Uh, some highlights of games that I had on my list were uh, Rising Sun, which I've only played once before, so I wanted to try to get a play of it again with a larger player count. Um, Marvel Age of Heroes. Also which, known as Lords of Waterdeep 2. Yeah, yeah, which we also played on the weekend, so that was good. I kind of got a twofer, two-for-one there on that one. Um, Founders of Gloomhaven, which is a game I've had for, for a long time that I've never had the chance to play. Um, and then one of the other ones was Pathfinder the Adventure Card Game, uh, something I got from a former co-worker when I lived in Dallas, um, what, eight years ago now? And uh, just never... Even I don't even know if I've opened the box yet. So um, I've played a couple games of it. Uh, our friend Pat, when he moved from Florida, he sent me all of his Pathfinder stuff. I'm like, awesome. This game is great, and I haven't touched it. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the game off your list that I was pulling for because I would really love an excuse to play Pathfinder Adventure Game again. Uh, Cleos, released in 2021 and designed by Jim Cavanaugh, the game is a lightly asymmetrical game of strategic combat and area control. It combines hex-based combat with your favorite card game elements for a dynamic experience. Join the contest as one of five Greek Olympian gods, Ares, Artemis, Hermes, Athena, or Dionys, Dion, Dionysus. Dionysus. 
I should have practiced that. Each with their own unique champion and divine deck. It is published by Azure Horizon Games and has a Board Game Geek rating of 7.9. For this part of the game, we'll start with our overall thoughts on tactical battle games. Bernsey, we'll start with you. Uh, I mean, area control games, I think, are fun. But it seems like what makes a good area control game great is less that specific aspect and more like the other mechanisms that are surrounding the combat aspect. So, sure, you're fighting over different tiles and fighting over different resources as a group, but it's like, what are the other things that you're doing to bolster that? So, like, Scythe, you know, that at its heart is an area control game. You're fighting over spots on the map, trying to get resources off of the map, you know, sometimes fighting each other off of different spaces or blocking people from those spaces. But you have all these other mechanisms that makes that a much more rich and interesting experience. It's not just what you're doing on the map. And so that's kind of my feel about like these, you know, area control games um, or like they have like that combat element in there um, that I think uh, makes things more interesting. I definitely agree with that. Um, It's a good way to think about it. I think kind of that tactical area control games are great because they allow for a lot, of, a lot of opportunity for those strategic decisions. And, and I think those decisions also come from kind of off of your point, mm-hmm. Joe, on, on the fact that the more things they kind of encompass that area control tactical experience with, you know, kind of the more options and design space they've allowed for you as, you know, whatever you are fighting over, whatever you're fighting mm-hmm. for. Um, but yeah, I, I do really enjoy them as well. Yeah, I'll just add that it's fun to chuck dice and kill your friends. Or, or chuck dice and be disappointed. <laughs> As a, yeah. We both work continually in this game. Yes. Bernsey, this was your game off your shelf of shame. What were your favorite elements of Cleos? So, yeah, and a little bit of background on Cleos. So I originally played this um, at Protospiel, Minnesota um, in February of 2022. Or 2020, excuse me. Um, before it was put up on Kickstarter. And uh, basically what Protospiel is, is you go there and you uh, basically play unreleased versions of games and give feedback, um, playtest feedback. That sounds like a really cool event. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And um, <coughs> it was this and For Glory. Basically, I met up with Alex, who designed For Glory, and Jim, who designed Cleos. And we each played, I played each of their games and we talked about them and stuff like that and gave feedback. Both of their games were pretty close to ready. Um, like I think For Glory went up on Kickstarter like three weeks after Protospiel. So it was really just like fine tuning stuff and more like a get the word out kind of thing for Alex. Um, and then I think it was the only thing Jim I think was waiting on was the miniatures for the champions getting finished. And that's why he didn't go up until like July of 2020. Um, but yeah, so I think my favorite parts of Cleos um, is the the mechanism for tracking activations and creatures on like this card mat. Um, and so it's like you have your up to five creatures, including your champion, and then they each get to do two actions. And on a mat, you slide them up for each action that they do. It's and a very it, simple and elegant way to track your activations for each yeah, thing. Yeah, the only thing that's a little bit of a downer is like the the mat that you use for that um it's so if you were to flatten it completely it's too wide to fit in the box but if you fold it it doesn't sit completely flat on the table um so that's the only like little bit of a a sort of 
negative about those mats specifically. And I know he tried lots of different things to figure that out and just eventually went with that mat anyway. Um, so I, I think that aspect of it is really cool as well as sort of related to the cards also. Um, the fact that you're recruiting creatures uh, to fight for you, but also some of those creatures can also be like modifications or upgrades for other creatures because they can either be mounts or they can be, I can't remember the other term, like monster. Oh, gosh. Basically, the monster eats them and gains yeah. some of their power is basically yep. what it is. Like a monster trophy, I think. Yeah, and so I, I think that's a really cool aspect that some of the a lot of the cards um, have like that shared purpose. And just as an example, like the Hoplite Warrior has uh, combat strength value and a movement value, but you could sacrifice them to another creature to increase their values a little bit. Yeah. And, and just the idea of seeing like a warrior riding on the back of a centaur just makes me like chuckle. And so I just think that's fun to have a, a centaur as a mount. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> it's like two men, one horse. I was wow. going to say one cup, but that's not exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Adam, your favorite elements of Cleos. Yeah, so um, I also really, really liked the card mechanics uh, with, you know, deploying your units. How do I, do I deploy this unit as, as an upgrade or do I deploy them as the unit themselves? I thought it was really cool. Um, I, I really like multi-use cards allowing for strategic decisions. And then, too, I'm a big fan of the theme. I love, like, kind of the Greek Olympian gladiator style games. I, I, I don't, I gravitate towards that theme a lot, I think. So, I did really enjoy the art looking through that kind of a little Greek mythology nut. So, it's kind of fun just to see how someone else depicts it or the different things they throw in there. So. Yeah, the art is great and it's like very stylized. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think that, I think the art is definitely a strong point of the game, too. Yeah, it didn't do much for me. I don't have much of an affinity for the Greek pantheon or the Greek mythos. Overruled two to one. You love the art. All right, I love the art. It was fantastic. <laughs> My favorite elements of the game. I thought that each of the five playable gods had a unique divine deck and their own unique champion. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and the tiny board funnels you into a small space that is just marred by constant conflict. I thought that was interesting. Adam, I know it wasn't your favorite element of the game, so I guess that's a good one to pick on. There are basically three areas that you can get victory points for controlling, and then if you progress past those, you can go up to these islands where you can recruit different mythical creatures to be a part of your army. Um, Adam, why did you struggle with the way the board funneled us into that area of conflict? Yeah, so I guess there's a couple things. There's other spaces like between kind of your camp or your starting spot and then the area of conflict. And typically for me, area control games have like different points of interest that aren't all combined into one. And then one thing I, as I was like thinking about it kind of post game weekend, I think he also, the designer hurt some of his cards a little bit by having just one area of conflict. So one of the things I was thinking about is the hunter cards. So the hunter cards, mm -hmm. like the mechanic is it is alone and attacking like rogue units. If, all you, if everyone's just piling into one area, what's the point of having hunter cards? And the hunter ability is super strong. So, like, the only way you could really do that then is to send them into other people's camps. Because, like, if you have them sitting in between a camp and the areas, it's just going to get destroyed because they can just move their army in and kill mm -hmm. you on their turn. So, it kind of takes out an element. So, I would really like to see 
the the areas kind of diversified a little bit and you have more than just really one cluster of capture points i guess bridge what do you feel about the uh funnel on the cleos board uh, yeah, I mean, it It does, <laughs> it gets to be a mess. And, <laughs> and like a big positive is it drives constant oh, no. action. A thousand, yeah, a thousand percent. And I think the game is better for having like that sort of focal point that everybody has, that bottleneck that everybody has to try to get through and has to fight each other through. Um, you know, I think it does help the game quite a bit. Um, it would be interesting if there was more of that that could be done where there's now this new place of interest that's worth extra victory points um you know i'm guessing the i'm guessing the concern would be that people would just focus on those if those were like more victory points and then wouldn't go and get the extra creatures to help or something like that or it would spread things out too much and there's like no conflict then um or like much more limited conflict um so yeah i don't know I, I do think it would be nice to have a little bit more of a way and playing as a group that focused on Hunter as a mechanic, it, it made it tricky to figure out how best to try to attack things. Yeah. So, and kind of, I guess not to like be like cup half empty kind of all the time on this one thing that this does actually fix from my experience of playing um, area control games is when there's only one area of interest, everyone's going for it, right? So, for example, we'll we'll play kind of a tangent on this. So, we played Lords of Hellas one year at the game mm-hmm. weekend. That has a ton of area, like, you have to control. But here's the thing. When you have different spots on the map, then you have to be really careful about balancing the map more. Because, let's say, if you're equidistance to one main area, but then there's, like, points of interest between each person's camp, if Joe's going heavy for the middle and I'm next to Joe... And then, you know, he's fighting Tom in the middle and I'm kind of sitting there. I can maybe just get a victory by sitting on that point, those like little points and no one's attacking me and I can just build up. Then I'm like, I can't be defeated. So when you have those other points of interest, it makes balancing the map a lot harder. So maybe as a, I don't know if he's a first time designer or obviously a smaller designer, right? That eliminates that whole balancing factor Mm -hmm. when everyone's just kind of punching each other in the middle. So Yeah, and the fact that you could jump from one of those three point places that score one victory point in one action move into the move into the port which is the bottleneck that's worth two victory points if you have the most creatures there and then you could use another action or if you have multiple movement to just like move past that and not get attacked on the port and go up and then go to recruit one of the creatures or uh beings up above um to help bolster yourself and then maybe when you come back you can take some swings at people um, so I think there's ways I think there's ways to get around it or try to get through the conflict. Um, but yeah, there's also tons of ways that other people can completely foil your plans too. So well, speaking of foiling each other's plans, there are a couple different ways that you can mess with other players in this game. My personal favorite was the siren, which allows you. The siren is a unit that you can place, and it allows you to pull a unit one space away. And if you have other units in that original space, they get an attack of opportunity on that other unit as they're walking away. And that I use that to perfection in the first game and then adam massacred my hunters uh massacred my sirens in the second game relentlessly yeah we all played all i did (laughs) we all played as two two gods two different gods each time a different god each game that we played except for tom was the sirens each game (laughs) and the god was just a little flavoring that the sirens had yeah i am the god of sirens uh there were other cards that allowed you to mess with players in others way as dionysus 
Mm-hmm. Nailed it. Uh, I had a card that allowed me to take, if there was a space with two other players on it, I could make them fight. And then I gained the glory from the fighting. Usually when you fight, the winner gets glory. The loser gets real pissy because they lost their units. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, I got the glory and I got to make both other players pissy. Do you guys <laughs> think that there are enough ways to interact with other players in this game other than running into the center and chucking the dice to combat? Or would you have liked to have seen that mechanic expanded? I think each god has different ways that they can do it. Yours is a bit, or Dionysus is, is a bit more direct. I know that uh, Hermes had the ability to kind of snipe things um, at times. Um, and so, yeah, I think each one has some of those options to be able to do that. It just depends upon whether you're able to pull them off or not, I think is is part of it. Um, and I think if you're Ares, yeah, I mean, your goal is to just run in and kill things, which... <laughs> you know, kind of fits the God of War, I guess, too, so. Uh, one of the, another mechanic in this game is a catch-up mechanic. If a player falls too far behind the leader, I think if you're eight glory or more behind the leader, you get to draw a Zeus card, which gives you, like, a powerful one-time upgrade to try to catch you up. Adam, did you think that the catch-up mechanic, the Zeus cards, was a strength or a weakness of this game? <laughs> um, I have it as both, actually. So, having a catch-up mechanic in a area control game I think is huge mm-hmm. so I commend the effort and I think it worked decently well um, I feel like I was in this probably weird realm and maybe it's an outlier that it happened like twice mm-hmm. <laughs> in both like in both games we played for me I never got to use the ketchup mechanic because I was always just Too good at games. one short of being at that ketchup mechanic actually yeah on both games and and so like there's also kind of well you know you're just also talking about how to like interact with people as you can kind of mess with people by like choosing not to score a victory point and not allowing them to get the catch-up mechanic and saying just far enough ahead but not too far ahead mm-hmm. where they're getting it so there was definitely like one purpose of full time that that happened to me and then the other time i think it was just happenstance um I think it's good. I think it could use slight tweaking to maybe utilize it better for people that are behind um, in different ways as well. I I, I don't want to go into a whole other yeah. mechanic, but there's times where I've... I had th- So we have 10 turns total across the two games, basically. Of those 10, I had three turns. I literally couldn't do anything with no units pretty much on the board outside of my hero mm-hmm. and maybe one other. So that was just hurting me in general. And that could happen because play proceeds in turn order and it goes clockwise and the first player token moves every time so if you're say the fifth player the last player to activate you could conceivably have all your units wiped off the board before you get to go which uh sounds like a super fun way to play games (laughs) (laughs) right so so yeah like there's a lot i like but there was also like a lot i felt like could have been worked on or you know I don't know. I, I don't yeah. want to hate on the game, but there no. was some definitely some negative experience well, with it a little bit. To the catch-up mechanic, so then we had Mark playing with us, where it seemed like Every his turn. strategy was the catch-up <laughs> mechanic. He would jump out and try to get points early, or even maybe not even do that. But then he was like behind by so much for like three turns in a row that he just collected Zeus cards, and then he seemed to like shoot back up. Um, he didn't win either of the games, but he was like in the running both, both of times. them. Yep. Um, so it was interesting to see that happen. I only got one Zeus card, and it was like the final turn of the final game. Um, so it, it didn't really impact things for me as much. But I will say, if you get shafted at the wrong time, mm-hmm. like 
it can be very difficult to recover from that. For sure. Because um, I know I had that happen to me in our second game, too, where it's like I get my champion all set up to do something, and then someone comes in and kills them. Or I go in and attack, flub my rolls, and then get killed. Um, then get it built back up, and then have circumstances happen that just, like, really ruined everything for me. And so it's like, I yeah, I didn't really do much the last, like, couple turns of the game yeah. because I, I was trying to recover, and then I was trying to set stuff up, and then, you know, right before it was my activation, I got destroyed, so. Yeah, I, it was definitely me that destroyed your turn in efforts <laughs> from Tom destroying mine, so it's like a yeah. domino effect, so we, can blame, so we can blame Tom ultimately for this yeah. issue. It was you indirectly ruining my turn. Yeah, Nick, I mean, very directly <laughs> Yes. Well, destroying all of my creatures <laughs> on one space. And yeah. it's just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it was tough with that. And I guess kind of like just to comment on that. So the last game we played, the second game we played, basically turn four of five, I couldn't do anything. And then turn five, I drew nothing to deploy. So I'm literally sitting there with this same exact stuff. And all I could do in my turn in effort to just have any effect on the game was to move other people's units around. And I moved a unit into Joe's stuff that just slaughtered... I underestimated, I guess, <laughs> Nick's potential to slaughter like yes. all of Joe's army with one unit, yeah. which was kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it really kind of screwed Tom or Joe over as yeah. well on that. Well, and to that point, because this is something that I'm not sure whether it's a strength or a weakness, because I like it, but I don't like it, is the um, lack of successes on the dice definitely makes the game more unpredictable. And so, and let's define that real quick. The yep. dice, six-sided die, yep. there are hits on two sides and four blank sides. So there's yes. a 33% chance that you're going to hit on a single die. Three blank sides. One side is the... I can't remember it's the like name the favor, of the symbol, but it's the like favor. the favor symbol. And only one creature in the entire game can have the favor symbol. And there's very specific things that can trigger it to switch between creatures. Um, if they get a slaughter, which is killing something by over three of what its HP was. Mm-hmm. Which we um, never accomplished very often. Yeah, it happened papers. a couple times, I think, was, was all that it happened. Um, or there's certain cards that will give the gods, or Olympus's favor to someone. Um, and so... Uh, it, it it's crazy because you'll have what three different things attacking uh three other things in a turn and you can come out of a turn where nobody died in the entire space mm-hmm. it was just like nobody rolled enough successes to completely kill something um and then you'd have nick who i don't know how he did it like does he have like some sort of like magnet of the of the like that part of the die that just always gets those successes to come up because he rolled successes every time way more than yeah. anybody should have ever rolled successes in that game it was bonkers well it's interesting we've talked about how much we like the cards that can be used in different ways to upgrade different characters and there were some neat things around that but it felt like so much of the combat devolved into rolling eight dice needing five successes five is yeah. a very common defense value and adam we both ran into this multiple times where we'd be chucking 13 14 dice trying to get those five successes and we'd roll like one mm-hmm. I get- yeah i mean there's times where i was literally rolling more i could roll more dice than the game even came with yeah 
and I and and I think there was a couple instances where like I was I was rolling like sixteen dice and I got like two successes. successes yes, it's like it's just an insane <laughs> odds against me, and I was like trying to play that up like okay, I'm gonna yeah. just I'm not rolling very good, so I'm just gonna get all the dice, yeah. and it still didn't help. And like and, and some of those, even if you had had Olympus's favor, you still wouldn't. It was wouldn't like have got so it. Many yeah, yeah, it was just like just like a blank slate. Like oh, what can I make these dice into? Yeah. Nothing. So I like it because it's unpredictable. Because I mean, I think part of battle like. Coming at it from like a game perspective, you're like, well, I want to have the ultimate strategy and mm-hmm. nothing's going to stop the strategy. But like in real war, real combat, there's things you can't control. And so I think that is a good representation of that. I think, though, it felt like a frustrating representation. I of that. feel like I feel like there needed to be maybe one other like way that you could manipulate the dice in some way, shape or form 100% to just help mitigate that. Not every role Mm -hmm. but like with one role like once or twice a game Mm -hmm. um i think that would have been something that would have been um a little bit more helpful with that so it's like when you know you need to do something or on the other side if you had some mechanism to like block thing block out a few hits once or twice a game to just sort of give you sort of a kind of a bounce back or a defense a a defensive like sort of surprise that you could Mm -hmm. pull um, and, and maybe there's some of the cards that we didn't see that have some of that, but I don't think so because we, we, we got through most of what each of the gods yeah. had uh, in store for them. So yeah. I, I definitely, l- l- for the record, I like dust dice chucking games. Mm-hmm. I, I do like that, and, and I'm okay with it odds kind of stacked against you. Mm-hmm. However, I think the game does lack dice manipulation mm-hmm. in the form of outside of just like there's a couple cards that literally just like reroll the whole thing. You don't you don't even get to save your successes if you're close. Yeah. So yeah, it could use a little bit of help from there that area. There are a couple of things that I really enjoyed about Cleos compared to other games where you chuck dice and kill your friends. Real quick setup. Yep. Like that is great. Um, like it's much quicker than say Memoir Forty Four, which is popular amongst my friends. Like this is a great way to just get in and yeah. chuck some dice. Um. What I one thing I viewed as a negative was the need to churn cards, and we didn't really pick up on this, especially early in our first game. But like, you draw up to three fates cards, and you have one card from your divine deck, and like you have to burn those cards, yeah, as efficiently as possible. Like holding things back uh, will really just hold you back. Like you need yeah. to throw everything into combat and go charging directly at yeah. Ares and hope that the uh, die favor you. Well, right, because and, and you're going to have things die. Like, that's like, you need to get used to, like, that aspect of it is that... Yeah, if you have sirens, Adam's just gonna hunt them mercilessly, <laughs> relentlessly. Well, that's because they were so powerful the first game. Like, that, that like, did a lot for you in that first game. And then the second game, you know, people strategized around that a little bit. Um, I, I, I also, I really like, um, and I, I touched base on this a little bit in our previous portion of this, but the multiple uses for many of the f- shared cards that are in the Fates deck. So the Fates deck is what everybody draws from. Um, like having them have multiple uses on a, a bunch of them, like really helped to give you like different ways you could use it. I'm going to use this as a mount on top of this other creature, or I'm going to use this as I'm going to use this as a sacrifice to give these bonuses to this creature. And it was easy to sort of forget that you could do that with some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is definitely something that will help just sort of bolster the units since the majority of the cards you're drawing are from that sort of shared set of creatures or, or uh, characters that you all have access to. Um, I also really liked, and I don't actually, I don't think I added it in here. 
I like the fact that there's like the negotiation aspect of going up, getting these like really sort of big creatures or epic, uh, epic characters uh, like Prometheus um, that that do like make a big difference in what you can do with the game. Um, and having some of your creatures aren't going to be really good at combat, but they're going to be good at negotiating with these people to get them on your side. Um, I think that's also a really neat aspect of this instead of it just being based completely around combat, um, for everything that you're doing in the game. So I really do like that as well. Um, I think the asymmetric design of the gods is neat and each one feels different and unique and it feels like that's what like this god's representation would be if they were actually like fighting over um like an area um i will say and the game kind of tells you this some of them are much harder to play than others and so you need to realize what you're getting into um the difficulty that you know the game comes with a card that basically tells you the difficulty that aries is the easiest to play mm -hmm. i believe dionysus is the hardest to mm -hmm. play yep. and they're all sort of ranked on a one two three four five complexity um and so some of those that are trickier to play like it can be finicky as to whether you're actually going to be able to make the most use of what their powers are but if you can, like, you could actually do some really, like, good things and really benefit off of it. It is just trickier, and especially as all of us coming into it as newer players, it kind of made it hard if you were playing one of those higher difficulty ones to really figure out exactly how to make that work in a five-turn game. I played as Dionysus the second game, uh, who is the most complex character is rated as the most complex character nobody played as dionysus in the first game so we didn't even have like any yeah. uh examples to work off of i i thought it was awesome but like i totally borked that character yeah. from the start so like uh having a second playthrough as dionysus would be a major benefit for me yeah and i played as hermes in the second get no no you were artemis the, artemis, second, game. the second game and uh like I wish I could have played as her again because I feel like the first couple rounds of that game I played like I did the one before where it's just like I'm going to pile all my creatures on one space. And then it's like I realized, oh, like all my creatures are hunters so they don't get their special abilities. All right, we got to rethink this moving forward. So let my things die. <laughs> let's let's put them back out. <laughs> let's see what we can do. It's like um, edge of tomorrow. Let's reset. Yes, pretty much. Um, other strengths and weaknesses from Bernsey's game, Cleos. Yeah, I mean, I guess a lot of the strengths were covered that I said. I, mm -hmm. The tableau is great. Art's great. Well, Has Adam, you felt like you were eliminated as a player in this mm -hmm. game. And the game goes a set number of rounds. Like, if you're eliminated, you can't just go have a sandwich. Like, it's right. going to come back to your turn. Yeah, so I was essentially eliminated on the first game. For the last turn, I lit, I couldn't do anything. Yeah. The second game, I was eliminated essentially after round three. Yeah. So my fourth and fifth turn literally was just sitting here waiting. And ruining the experience for Burns. Well, yeah, I ruined the experience. <laughs> well, I ruined his, his gameplay of the last turn yeah. for Burns. And then I guess, you know, if you can't beat anyone, have someone join you is the concept <laughs> I did there. Unintentionally, yeah. but it did happen. Um, I was just trying, like, I was just, like, literally trying to throw a Hail Mary in. Uh -huh. and, I don't know. I guess I hit the cheerleader on the side or something like that. Yeah. But, but yeah, the randomness is high, so that's definitely a weakness for me with no way to really deal with that. Yeah, and that second game, too, I kind of felt the same way. Like, I had things go really badly for me the third turn before it got to me, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, okay, so fourth turn's all going to be about trying to build something up. And then it's like, I drew some cards on the fifth turn, and okay, 
I can go in and try to be a spoiler against someone. And so that's what I did is I threw basically everything on my champion. And it's like, I'm just going to run to the center with my champion fully tooled up with all this stuff um, with the hunter, like a couple of hunter abilities that I was going to be able to trigger. And it's like, I could probably attack twice with an extra card that I had to get an extra activation uh, and just try to like screw things up for the people that are in the lead and just be a factor in the end of the game. Um, but yeah, then I got destroyed and it's like, oh, okay, my last turn's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it almost would have probably felt better had I been just eliminated. I could have gone, yeah. like, did something else. But at the same time, like, how do you have a game where you're eliminated at round three of five, too? Yeah. I, I don't know. That's just like, that's kind of an old school design mechanic in my mm-hmm. eyes. You don't see games where people are l- eliminated anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, I guess if you go in knowing that that's a possibility, um, you can kind of try to protect yourself from that, or you can, yeah. or you can, yeah, just take the risks and know that, you know, it's a it's a long hard fall mm-hmm. if you if you don't if you don't succeed. And it's, so I think knowing that going in moving forward will help me as a player just prepare myself for that. So it's like, oh, okay, oh well, that happened. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. the end of it. Um, it can also help me prepare other people when we're talking about the game and how it works and that it's just like, yeah, you can push your luck and, you know, if you lose, <laughs> you're going to lose, you're gonna right? Lose, yep. um, one other thing that I think is really tricky in this game is that I, I feel like because you draw so few cards in the game, card luck can be a very, oh, yeah. very, like pressing thing um if you don't get your right god cards uh at the right time or like a certain one clumps into the bottom of the deck and you never draw it like that can be like extremely harmful to your ability to actually do things for that game um usually with the fates deck you can mix and match things together to put cobble together like some forces to at least do something but with the divine decks you have roughly 20 cards in your deck and five turns where you draw one each turn it's 12 i think but yes but yeah so you're only drawing about half of your deck i think you might have some cards that allow you sometimes where you could draw more than one but yes and so that's the thing you're not going to see all your abilities that you have um and that can that could be really hampering, I think, for certain gods compared to compared mm-hmm. to others. Um, well, Burns, your final thoughts and takeaways on Cleos? So I, I would say Cleos is a great game when you just want to play Rock'em Sock'em robots with, robots with myth, or mythical creatures and figures. Um, as long as you go in knowing that you've what you've built can crumble to dust like instantly. Um, I think and that you can't do anything about it sometimes because of the player order or whatever. Um, I think you should still have a great time as long as you know that, you know, what you have could be gone in an instant and there's sometimes nothing that you can do about it. Don't grow too attached to your sirens. Exactly. (laughs) This is a total pack game. Adam, your final thoughts and takeaways on Cleos. Yeah. I, I, I had not the greatest experience, I would say, but... And to poke at that for one second, we did play this as, like, the last game on the second or third day of Board Game Weekend. Do you think that maybe Board Game Fatigue played a little bit of a role in this, or do you think this is uh, solely based on some of the challenges you found with Cleos? Yeah, for me, it wasn't fatigue, I guess. Um, I just... I would love to see an expansion come out that tweaks some of these things, like ways to fix the randomness a little bit. Maybe the catch-up mechanic has a different way that you can trigger it as well. Um, and maybe a couple points of interest extra, mm-hmm. I guess, that would be added. I would definitely give it a shot again. 
And as... But as it's currently constituted, Burns shows up at your front door with Cleos <laughs> in arms. Like, you going to open that door or are you just going to leave him out in the cold? Well, the good thing is I'll let him in because I have a hundred other games that we can play. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I would give it a, another shot again. I think, like Joe said, you got to go in knowing, like, if something bad happens or the dice decide they hate you that day, it's not going to go well and you have to play very conservative. And maybe that's part of it, too. Yeah. Like, some of these games... Like, it's, it's very interesting where, like, you almost need to play it a bunch of times to, like, oh, that's truly how that mechanic is actually meant to be uh-huh. played. I, I've played some games where it's, like, I've had to play a game six times to, like, have something click. Yeah. And it could definitely be one of those where it's, like, maybe we were just pi- playing Monkey Pile way too fast mm-hmm. and more people send in, one, like, have, there's ways that you can spread auras a, a space away and maybe there wasn't enough of that and we were just like, oh, well, this seems like we all just run at each other yeah. with our spears out. Maybe there's other ways to mitigate that more. And, and it's definitely like, it's not a sprint. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that's the biggest takeaway for me is it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Yeah. So maybe play five points down so you can get some of those catch-up mechanics. True. Do you think that this would be in the neighborhood of some of your least favorite games? Not calling it a bad game, but just driving with your personal taste. Do you think this would be in the neighborhood or is it somewhere above that? I would say it's a little above that. I, like I said, the theme pulls me a lot, and the art I do like. And as we already stated, two to one, art is good. So, <laughs> um, but but yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's in the pit of games. I There's some pretty low games down there that I, I really have a distaste for, and I wouldn't say it's not that low. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad we didn't make you do something you hated for this podcast. <laughs> uh, this is a total Pat game. Pat would freaking love it. I think it's probably best served as like the only game you play on a short board game night like if we're gonna get together for a couple hours and only play one thing i think maybe this is it like we played this in the middle of some truly remarkable games and i think that maybe drug the experience down for me a little bit uh, another note that i have just not a great option with a partner unless you like sparring with each other like mm-hmm. this is not a game i would ever play with phoenix because she does not like chucking dice and killing each other and that's okay we don't have mm-hmm. to play those games together but like um as far as sharing with a partner or someone else in your life maybe not the best option yeah i think i think you really have to go in not going in like you do with maybe worker placement games or engine builders or things like that where you're like i can make all of these choices and that's going to do this for me um you just have to realize you don't have control over a lot of aspects of this game so grip it and rip it yeah go along for the ride you know, maybe the ride takes you to victory. Maybe the ride, you know, <laughs> takes you to the poorhouse. But you just got to be along for the ride and be okay with where wherever it takes you and try to enjoy it. It's like Mad that. Max Fury Road. Like, yes. you know, a lot of it doesn't make any freaking sense at all. But, you know, you just <laughs> crank up the music and see where you end up. <laughs> oh, man. We're going to move on to Tom Awesome's Top 5. It's time now for... Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. I think we have a very interesting topic for our Top 5 today. Adam, one thing that you do, and I think this is particularly relevant on the Shelf of Shame episode of Outside is Overrated, you regularly cull your games and try to keep your collection manageable, which I know we've talked about in different New Year New Game podcasts. But today, for our top five, we're going to give your top five tips for calling a collection. Yeah, so I feel like 
people know me as having an ungodly amount of games to begin with so i actually know you as having like the best games no offense to burns i like your collection too you have a lot of awesome things to play but like adam has all the like big fancy expensive things that i would never buy for myself so it's like oh when you brought me to your house and showed me your game room it's like whoa can i just like be your symbiote yeah yeah it's it's definitely a problem and i'm as i've mentioned we're building a home and so Game Room 2.0 is already in the works, and there will be lots of plans for it, and I'm super excited to, to get to that point. But, yeah, it really in order to I – ha- I've purchased a ton of games, and, and, and my thought is to find those games you truly love, you have to kind of taste a little bit of everything. So up until probably this year, I've just been like, yep, it seems interesting. Let's buy it. Let's buy it. Let's buy it. But I also then have the other end of it where – I do. Uh, I feel like I do a decent job at also getting rid of games. I've had multiple large purges. I just did another one before moving. I've literally never purged a game out of my system. The way that I've purged is I've given away games that I didn't like as much during the Patreon party. So, like, the Horizon board game, great prize, Billy. So did you just, like, put everything back in the punch board and wrap it? Or no, you told them that it was opened already? Oh, yeah, okay. no, I told them it was the one that we used for the show. Oh, okay, okay. Well, maybe yeah. maybe one year we can do an Adam's Culling uh, giveaway at the party, <laughs> and I'll just bring all my games. I plan to call at that point. And, and it's not necessarily bad games. Like, yeah. I guess, kind of getting into it more, like... We said, you know, top five tips. I kind of have to have a pre-tip, I guess. I'm adding a lot of extra. Uh, Burns and I are big fans of the pre-tip. The pre-tip, yeah, yeah. It's it's an important part. <laughs> you have to decide your goal, right? So so really it's like, am I a collector? Am I? Do I only want to play the same game over and over and over again so I keep my collection really low? Do I, do I want to collect games? Like everyone kind of great things about hobbies is you go to what interests you right <clears throat> so so my before steps is really decide what your goal is so so for me for example that's i like to have a variety of games but if i feel like i'm not going to be able to play a game in a couple of years or things like that there's a lot of different things it's like i try to keep my collection at or under the 250 games mark which sounds kind of insane but i know <laughs> i know like it's a that's a lot of space b some people are like that's insane and then but some people you look at they're like you see so post on social media they're like oh i i'm i'm trying to keep my games under a thousand games Uh and it's like okay so if you play one game a day and some of those games are like large campaign games that take hundreds of thousands of hours depending on which one you buy it's like so if you play one game a day that's three years worth of games basically Mm -hmm. to get through so for me, it's like I want to be able to realistically play my collection within a two-year time frame. So that's my overarching goal. So kind of number five is what games feel similar? That's that's my tip. So my best example for this is Dominion, which is seen as a great game, one of the entrepreneurs of deck building, per mm-hmm. se. I actually called due to my love of Mystic, Mystic Veil. So Mystic Veil is a card crafting mechanic so instead of like purchasing cards to put into a deck you're purchasing cards to upgrade your cards and there's like this really cool like see-through card mechanic where you stick your cards into a a card sleeve but it shows different values then through like kind of through the cards so you're upgrading your cards rather than like building a deck and i would Mm -hmm. desperately like to play that sometime yeah it's it's fantastic so like for me when i got to that point of i realized i between this choice, I'm always going to choose Mystic Veil over Dominion. Why keep Dominion? And and that I actually ended up giving to Mark, one of my friends, who was at the game weekend as well. And he went and played with his family multiple times and got his family into it, got his in-laws into it. 
and that also brings me some joy because it's like now this game i've purchased i've given to a friend and it's getting played so you're like the sarah mclaughlin of board games where it's like you know, meow, the board meow, game was, meow, yeah, meow, it was just going to be neglected in your collection, never played again, just sort of in the darkest corner of the shelves. But you sent it to a new family that loved it and played with it and enjoyed it yes. as if it was as if it was a special little uh, special little board game in the sea. And... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's that's one way to look at it for sure. <laughs> so uh, kind of moving on to point number four, too. So frequency gets played. So, as I said, I try to keep my collection about that 250 mark in my head realistically, like, can I try to play a game in a couple of years? So, if a game hasn't been touched in years, I also might start losing interest in it. And that's also a downside of crowdfunding, right? Especially with the pandemic and all that thing. Uh-huh. We've talked about how I've literally had games arrive on my doorstep that I've lost interest in mm-hmm. because it took three years to get to me. And yeah. I have another one that I won't badmouth yet. But we'll, we'll see if, if my opinion changes on it. But I've been waiting for a very long time for it. And, and the frustrating thing for me is I see the designer claiming in the Kickstarter updates that they work on it every single day when I know I've seen Facebook posts from this designer of them not working on it every single day. I've seen other <laughs> things going on. And I get your human and right stuff. Yeah, but yeah. like if you've taken their money and you're three years late... It's That's like another if, point, I yeah. guess. It's like if George R. R. Martin was crowdfunding the rest of Song of Ice and Fire. It's like, no book is ever, ever coming. <laughs> right, exactly. But if he had already collected on that's, it. That's... Winter, Winds of Winter is coming. <laughs> In Wisconsin or Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, yeah, it's definitely that's definitely a uh, comparable point. Um, Uh, The next step, I guess, step three would be how hard is it to get to the table versus the enjoyment of the game? So I think my best example of this is Twilight Imperium, right? Everyone knows Twilight Imperium is super hard to get to the table, but provides a great experience for the most part. Some people aren't into the giant 4X games. I love 4X computer games. I love 4X board games. I'm a 4X player. So for me, how frequent I get Twilight Imperium to the table is worth keeping in my collection. And and it's one of my favorite experiences. So for me, keeping that in there, even if I only get to it once or twice a year, is worth it. But in some cases, some of the larger games that are harder to get, um, I've had to get rid of. What about a game like Mosaic, which we played twice a game weekend and we really enjoyed, but that setup is really intensive. How long of a shelf life do you see for a Mosaic? So that one's kind of interesting. So that one, actually, I feel like the shelf life will be quite a while. I really enjoyed that. I think um, if I buy just like a cloth bag to put all those tokens in so you're not like separating them out every time Uh and I just, you know, 3D print some decent organizers for the game to help reset faster... I think the life of that game will last quite a while because truly for that Civ game, it's quick. And if you have the same player group that's played it multiple times, once you start getting that third, fourth, fifth playthrough, I can see that game actually coming down to the box value of a two-hour playthrough. Mm -hmm. So to get a two-hour playthrough of a Civ experience for me is worth keeping. I think it just needs a little help to get there. And I know there's an expansion coming out too, so um, which I already have in the pipeline of my crowdfunding <laughs> list. So, so yeah, so there's that. But it, it's definitely a good experience, but I, I see that one staying. I think a good example of how hard it is to get to the versus the enjoyment, I'm a huge MOBA-style uh, player. I played, I've wasted way too much of my life playing MOBA games, and there was a 
Guards of Atlantis 2 came out. I really wanted to get it, but it almost requires four people at the table each time. And it's kind of one of those lifestyle games where everyone's asymmetric. So you kind of have to learn everything. So you need the same play group to make it worth your while. Play it 10 times to start understanding everything. I just don't have that play group to yeah. want to play that. And, and sadly, I passed on it. But it's kind of one of those things. Well, and it's, I mean, a game that we've talked about multiple times on the podcast, Gloomhaven, mm-hmm. same kind of kind of thing. Like, you have to have a set of players that you're going to go through multiple scenarios, multiple times. Like, you're, you're going to try to play this game with the same group of people so much. And there's lots of people that buy Gloomhaven that just don't really get through much of the game because it's kind of hard to get that groups consistently together yep. um so that's why it's like one of those things where if people are asking oh should i buy gloomhaven should i get this like i really ask them those questions first and it's like do you think you could find at least one other or three other people that you can play this regularly like once a month once every other week once a week um, and put the time in to get the experience out of it because if not it's not worth buying and that's why I daydream about playing with my children because it's a captive audience like especially before <laughs> they get driver's licenses like <laughs> it's like oh yeah you, you can get your driver's license once we finish Gloomhaven yeah. <laughs> that might work I've never thought of that I'll put that in my back pocket um, we kind of touched on this a little bit but Point number two, I guess, or, or bullet point number two, or number two, however we're wording this, isn't not really top five, but it's a top five of things you should look at, would be your, your play group interest or solo interest or player counts, right? Some games require you to have three. So do you have three people that are going to be interested in playing that? So your play group does dictate a little bit of your play. Just like I said, Guards of mm-hmm. Atlantis is a perfect example of this. I'm a huge mobile player. Would love to have someone learn it with me, but it's not just one. Yeah. It's now I need four mm-hmm. or like four, including myself. So it's like, yeah, it's tough. And, and like, I, I really struggled passing on that game, but it's like, I can't invest cause it's a crowdfunding that happened this year. So it's like, do I invest $400 for a game that I know is going to sit there? Cause yeah. I need three other players to be invested in with me as well. Yeah. So, and it's interesting to look at it because looking at it from the other perspective about building like a board game collection, Uh, especially during the pandemic, because really when I was getting together, I was getting together with basically one other person to play board games somewhat regularly. And at that point, I realized I have a very small amount of games that are really good at two players. And so it's funny how that can kind of also turn on its head when you're building a board board game collection where it's like, do I have games that are fun with two players? Do I have games that are fun with three? Or like for Board Gaming Weekend, do I have good games that are six players mm-hmm. you know or or for larger groups seven or eight um and and so it's it's interesting to take that into account um because there's lots of games that are for three or four players and and sometimes that gets hard to determine okay well which of these five games do mm-hmm. we pull out today yep. you know mm-hmm. um and are so, they yeah. good at three or four players are they better at two are they better at one right, there's that right. whole element as well yeah i'm kind of realizing now i really feel like i wish there was a career path kind of like a financial advisor but a, <laughs> a board game purchase advisor i feel like i would really shine in that category of career i just don't know if there's a market for it right now um I mean, a personal buyer of board games yeah for yeah let me let me take a look at your collection and give you some recommendations on what you could be doing differently so yeah um kind of on that point i guess like um honorable mention uh here would be does a game compete with others you'd rather be playing so if you're sitting there playing um a greek 
area control game, maybe for example, and you're sitting there, I just rather be playing Downforce. Is that <laughs> is that like something that's coming to thought? Because like if yeah. you're sitting down to play a game and you're sitting there the whole time thinking of another game, mm-hmm. should that game be living in your collection? I guess is something that I feel like you should ask yourself. I don't feel like a lot of people are in that uh, mode, but that's why I kind of put it as my honorable mention. I feel like maybe that's for us whales per se of the large collection <laughs> people, but. Um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, it is something to keep in mind. So um, I guess number one, and this is some really sound advice that I think we all worked on <laughs> at this last board game weekend, is to play your games. It's really hard to call games if you never played them. Yeah. Um, sadly, I've actually called a couple games based off of games unplayed or, like I said, I've lost interest in or things like that. Um but I just I have a lot of turnover that's happened the last couple of years, so I just had to make some decisions, especially with the move happening. So that is the number one thing, yeah. though. If you play your games, you have a lot better understanding of what you may or may not like, and does that game fit your style or your group or whatever your needs are for that game. Yeah, good list. Quick recap of it. Um, for th- things to keep in mind when you're calling your games, number five, similar feeling games, choosing the ones that you prefer when you have similar things the frequency games get played how hard it is to get to the table versus the enjoyment of the game uh the interests of your general play group and your personal feelings after actually playing the games so one question i had when it comes to deciding to call things or not is how much does the amount that you could make off of a sale impact your decision to sell something like does that sometimes tilt the scales in one direction or another more than another one if you can make another hundred dollars off of selling one yeah than the other or it might make a difference for some i think i've probably called around 150 games at this point and i would say that factor is only one okay so i i backed a game it was very expensive because it had literally nfc chips in the cards that integrated to a NFC reader on literally the colony you're building. There was only like 500 copies made in the world at the time, but they were planning a reprint and I played it multiple times and I just didn't like it. And thanks to my, my counselor, uh, uh, Mr. Burns over here, (laughs) he helped me kind of talk through the process. I was wanting to play another similar game, but I just didn't have time and it's too big of a space to Mm -hmm. have in the town home right now. And, and in the end, just kind of talking to him about it, I'm like, I realized I'm not enjoying it because of these hidden algorithms the designers had. And I was actually able to, recuperate all of my costs because I actually sold it for more than what it was MSRP'd for, which offset my Kickstarter shipping and all that other stuff. So that did play a factor because of the timing. I wanted to get it sold before the reprint to make my money back. But outside of that game, every single game I've called just for the fact of money wasn't a factor. It was Mm -hmm. more of just like this game has been replaced or I do not like let's just get rid of it or find a better home for it or don't i've mm-hmm. i've sold games yeah. i've donated games i've given games to friends i've done the gambit i've donated yeah. to high school programs i've i've donated to people sold games all that and stuff I, and i know one other thing that like the cost or how much you could sell something for has influence is trying to play something sooner to realize if you want to keep it or not so i know you've mentioned that a couple of times where it's like oh like there's like a high demand right now for this game. I really need to play it to see if I want to keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know that that can be a factor, at least to evaluate it, yes. to make sure that now is the time to, to act on it mm-hmm. if I don't want to keep it. So I need to make sure that this is a game I want. Yeah. And that's advice I think I've even given you yeah. was too with like Trudvong was like, yeah. 
figure it out fast because once yeah. the reviews start coming out, the, it's going to be the price pummeled. Or the the, pr- the price plummeted on that before it could ever get high. So, yeah, yeah. Like Dunham and I are both sitting there with that game, and it's just like, well, maybe the cost, maybe the asking price will go up when. Uh, the, the the rest of it comes out and people want to buy the all in i don't know but, yeah. yeah yeah it's tough it's a, it's a tough thing but yeah. some people don't like calling either yeah so the game that i bought that i near instantly regretted buying because then a game that was more what i was looking for came up on kickstarter shortly after that and so yeah that was true bang for me um i don't know if it's not worth tell- if it's not worth selling i'll try to play it at some point probably but we'll see we'll see we'll see what happens I'd be so mad if I wasted my Kickstarter dollars. <laughs> it will happen from time to time. Adam, great list. Let's move on to our final topic of the day. For our final topic, we discuss Valeria Card Kingdoms. Designed by Isaias Vallejo and published by Daily Magic Games, the game released in 2016. Some uh, the strategy that went into my list, I had three of my all-time favorites. Couriers, One Deck Dungeon, and Dark Souls the Card Game. I guess that's relatively strong praise for dark souls i enjoy dark souls three games that i know and like and wanted to share with you guys were on my list so that was three of my ten there were two games that i'd only played once and wanted to give another chance munchkin quest and tmnt shadows of the past there were three games that i hadn't played yet but desperately wanted to so that's really my shelf of shame valeria card kingdom tiny epic tactics and clank and two other games that i just hadn't played yet mysterium and formula d and i really agonized over my list of ten like Lord of the Rings Living Card Game, that was on my list for a little bit. I thought that would have been an interesting experience for the three of us. Also, the Lord of the Ring Adventure Game, which we've had forever, never actually played. It goes up to eight players. It's like, well, let's put this weird and wonky thing on and make an excuse to play it. Uh, But it was Valeria Card Kingdoms that won the favor of the randomizer. Valeria Card Kingdoms is a tableau building game for one to five players that feels familiar for deck building fans. The cards you buy can work for you on your turn and on all other player turns as well. On your turn, you're going to roll two dice and activate citizen cards with the result of the die rolled and the sum of both dice. So basically, you're buying cards with a value between 1 and 12. You're rolling two dice, and if you roll a 2 and a 3, you're activating your 2s, your 3s, and your 5s. And you get resources, you get specific resources if you roll the die. There's a left side and a right side of each card. If you roll the die, you get what's on the left side. If it's someone else's turn, if Burns rolled the two and the three, I would activate the right side of my cards, which is generally lesser resources. Uh, Other players simultaneously activate their citizens based on the roll. The active player will take two actions following the roll. You can either slay a monster, recruit a citizen, buy a domain, or take one of any resource. Then, after so many stacks of cards are exhausted, the player with the most victory points at the end wins the game. Yeah, I think the other thing that you missed is that you're, you get choose from one of two dukes at the beginning of the game. And that kind of gives you the framework for what you'll get extra victory points for at the end of the game. So that's kind of telling you what types of, what types of characters you want to recruit or what types of domains you want to buy. Because the more of a certain symbol is going to give you multiple more victory points for each one uh, at the end of the game. So that kind of guides you down a path to try to maximize more points um, that ends up being a pretty impactful decision to make at the beginning of the game. It's essentially a hidden objective, not unlike you get in Wingspan or other games. Um, I haven't actually played many tableau building games. I like building engines a lot, and there's an element of that. Uh, Bernsey, what's your experience with tableau builders? So, I, I, tableau building games are interesting to me. 
Um, some, like Sushi Go Party, uh, can be pretty much entirely about just building that tableau and still be strategic and fun. Whereas, like, other tableau builders tend to be defined by their other mechanics a little bit even more so. Kind of like Takedo and Valyria. You're scoring a lot of your points off of your tableaus, but it's a lot of the other things that you're doing that are helping to buff that kind of, so to speak. Um, which Tuk- I think is interesting also. Takedo is a great game. I enjoy Takedo a lot. Anyone who hates it with a burning fiery passion is wrong and shouldn't be allowed to play games anymore. And the funny thing is you're not being hyperbolic about that. Like the the two or three other people that we played with like actively hated that game the entire time we played it. Yeah, they did. They're like, yo, when do we get to roll dice and chuck people? I'm like, here, buy some sushi. Yeah, stop at this hot spring. Relax for take, a while. Take a picture. Chill out, dude. Go pray at the shrine, dang it. Yeah, there's all kinds of different board game experiences out here. Heaven forbid you try to like introduce a new palate cleanser or even worse, how dare I introduce like a taste breaker? <laughs> Takata's a great game. Uh, but Adam, your thoughts on Tableau Builders? Yeah, I I don't know. I, I have a hard time like talking bad about gaming in general. So I, obviously I love Tableau games as well. But I think the fun thing for me on that is with Tableaus, you're usually building something up, right? And that, and that gives me a lot of satisfaction of like kind of building my thing compared to other people's things, right? And, and that, that thing you're building is... And I mean, we all love comparing things here. Yeah, right, exactly. The size of things, how effective my thing is. Mm-hmm. Um, but that thing is dependent on the theme. So that could be something as simple as a cozy little creature house, which we experience, or you're building a city, or maybe a post-apocalyptic bunker um, is another game. I guess we've played things with Earth things. Good Lord. We're just <laughs> going to say things the rest of the time. Yeah. Uh, just played you know a tableau builder with that you're building stuff up and, and it gives you that satisfaction of like being able to say this this is how i created my custom unique experience within that game yeah it's a cool mechanic uh, my favorite thing valeria card kingdoms is my game and my favorite thing about about it my is favorite yours? element is that it's mine and you guys <laughs> can't have it suck on that yeah you may have chip theory games but i got uh <laughs> I got daily magic over here. No, it's that the core premise is so easy to understand. It's so simple to grasp. What am I doing in this game? Well, you can either slay monsters, recruit citizens, or build domains. Um, a secondary thing for me is that you gain resources and other player turns. Like it is exciting. Or it's nice for me to be excited about burns as well. Like yeah. the burns rolls double ones, and I have a whole stack of clerics. All right, give me all those magic. I am going to be so loaded for my turn. And yeah. burns doesn't have any clerics. Huh? How does it feel to be a failure, burns? Yeah, and and you're always engaged in what's going on around the table, which is nice. I think that's I think that's a good thing about games. There's some games where. It's like, okay, I did my turn, and now I wait 25 minutes for everybody else to go. Hopefully their stuff doesn't screw up what I do for my five minutes. Yeah, oh, and Casey's playing too, so I'm just going to go use the bathroom, go up, make a lasagna, maybe run to the store real quick. (laughs) Oh, man, yeah, you kind of stole, I guess, my favorite element of the game a little bit there was the the engagement part of it, right? Like, one of the things that kind of drives me nuts sometimes when you're gaming is like you'll get the people who just like suddenly sit on their phones it waits they wait for their turn to come around now i'm going to start thinking about my turn uh-huh. where this it's like you kind of have to be involved otherwise you're missing out on resources if you're not paying attention to the roles right you have to be gathering that stuff on other people's turns and i think that's a huge underrated mechanic in games mm-hmm. making that interactive experience the whole time yeah keeping everyone engaged and honestly i think it speeds up games because yep. people are yep. now engaged and they're constantly thinking about their turns yep. as well i agree and that is my 
biggest pet peeve in gaming and it is not close when someone is not thinking ahead about their turn like you don't always know how the cards are going to fall leading yep. up to your turn and like i like to poke a lot of fun at my friends casey and adam for being deep thinkers and it's fine that's how they process information like i'll keep poking fun on them and it's fine i bear them no ill will but if somebody is like dicking around and then it comes to their turn it's like oh yeah how does this game work again yeah it, oh it yes. just drives me crazy and like there's a lot of people that i want to play games with like i do not need to play with people who waste my time uh, one thing that I thought is a big strength of Valeria is that it's very easy to onboard people. I played this game now with several different groups of people. We played different expansions. Just today, before jumping onto the podcast, we played an entirely new expansion that makes it a cooperative experience. Strips out a lot of things like the Duke story was talking about. Strips out a lot of things that other expansions have added just to make it a completely different experience. And even though it was mostly different from Valeria core elements were the same we were slaying monsters we were recruiting citizens and we were trying to accomplish one specific objective that a book set out and i think that it's just so easy to get people on board with valeria that i think it's probably this game's greatest strength for sure i i really really like i'll just keep going on that one i really like that it's not too heavy like you said quick engaging getting people on to the game and honestly like i only i only played one co-op experience but i almost am leaning towards liking that co-op experience more and i would definitely be interested to see how that storybook kind of progresses through um it's it's fun yeah me too let's just say this game is good and go back to the table (laughs) that's it everyone thanks for listening uh i mean and it's it's fun to roll dice and in this case it's like sure you can roll stuff then you don't get as many resources but it's not like when you're in a combat game and you're rolling dice and it's like, oh, I failed, so I did nothing. It's, mm-hmm. you know, you're just, you're rolling dice and I'm going to get something out of this, especially with the added cards where it's like if you don't match on anything um, or you get doubles, you know, you get extra resources as well. Like, I think that's a good addition that some of the expansions added. And so through, it's like literally you're getting a couple of things each turn. And through the expansions, they've introduced four different cards like that. So there were none in the base game, but now there's a few different options. So like you can kind of self-select when you're setting up the game. If you want wild resources or if you want it to equal something else, one of the expansions is a pirate theme. And if you roll dice that don't match any of your citizens on your tableau you get a map and you can use that map to go up to these islands and get some pretty cool rewards so in that game that we played recently i was actively stacking singular numbers on my tableau hoping that i'd often miss and get those map tokens Mm -hmm. and so when i did hit it's like jackpot it's like all right let's reel in all these resources but even if i do miss on all of my citizens like all right well we'll get a map and we'll just go steal that big pile of magic that's sitting up on the cursed island yeah. Um, so yeah, I think rolling the dice is just fun, and yeah, the fact that you're engaged all the way through with what everybody else is doing, I think, is also super helpful. Um, and I think like you're not just engaged with like the dice rolling, but since you're all pulling from the same areas, you have to be paying attention to like how close is this stack getting to to being gone. And the um, way the end game triggers, there's stacks of citizens, monsters, and domains. Uh, if twice the player count number of things, the stacks get exhausted, the game ends. So we were playing a three-player game today. So if six stacks get exhausted, game ends. If all the monsters get slayed, game ends. If all the domains get built, game ends. So as Burns said, like you need to pay attention to what other players are doing because like if you see someone like intentionally trying to short stack, like they might feel like you're sitting on a big stack of victory points and you might need to take action to try to either prolong the game or really double down to try to focus your efforts to bank as many victory points as possible. Yeah, I think also with with Valyria, um, you know, I guess these two strengths that I have are kind of combined. 
but the iconography on the cards is clear and it makes sense. So it's like they're very specific symbols for what everything is. This is what the die value is. This circle is what type of creature it is that connects to all these other cards that you're getting um, that are that are matching that symbol. So that's like in a tableau game, that's like super important to be able to clearly see what all of these are. Um, and then I think once you get the rules down, it's, it's super quick to play. Like. You know, once you realize what you have to do, I mean, sure, once we were playing with the expansions, there were a lot of rules and we forgot some rules, um, played things a little bit wrong at times. But uh, but otherwise, like once you get it down, it, it all makes sense. It all flows. It you, you roll dice, you buy what you can and you attack what you can. You move on. And I think that's like that's one of the other like really big strengths of the game is just how like that core gameplay loop works. Um, and, and there's not a lot of room in there for like. I don't think there's a lot of room in there for too much analysis paralysis or getting bogged down in the details because, you know, it's pretty straightforward and simple of what you can do and how you can accomplish it. Adam, let me push this towards you. You love big, heavy, brain-burning, strategic games. Valeria is a much more streamlined experience. Is this a game that you would be, say, excited for at Game Weekend, or is this a game that fills in the cracks in between those big, heavy, meaty games? both um i like yeah i was like excited to play it again today and and it's definitely one that's like for me it, it is probably more of a palate cleanser for me where it could be just like a normal game for someone else and and that's okay like i, I don't pass judgment on people by saying you have to like the games i like because i lean towards the heaviest games in the industry thinking that's great and and i know it burns people out um but it's definitely like a great like I always look for, I would look forward to playing this one at the next game weekend again in between games just like I do for Downforce which is also not a brain burner either mm-hmm. but those palette cleansers you find those palette cleansers you really enjoy I think that's rejuvenating as well but mm-hmm. I would also play this with people that are just like hey let's play a light game because mm-hmm. that happens too this is something I would definitely gravitate towards yeah I think it's it fills an interesting niche because it is on the lighter side but it's like something the setup can be a little intense as you're picking out the different numbers to fill each one of the citizens uh but like for example phoenix and i played this last week on a whim and it was late we had a tough night getting the kids down and like it had been a really long day i just started a new job so i'm like mentally fatigued and it's like well yeah all right we'll play and like it went quick it was super fun and then it was done and like that was just really nice um i think Another strength of this game is that it gets really interesting as you add more players to it. Mm-hmm. It scales up to four players. I'd played two players with Burns. I'd played two players with Phoenix. At Board Game Weekend, we played four players, two different games. And it's interesting how it shifts because you have your Duke and you have your, which is your secret objective. And like you might need like the rogue type characters. You might need the warrior type characters for your victory points. In a two player game, you can really focus on buying those dudes and like stack them mm-hmm. up in your tableau and get a lot of them. In a four-player game, I buy a champion. Then if Burns buys a champion because he likes the reward, it's like, oh, God, there goes one of my helmet dudes. And then if Adam buys one, it's like, oh, God, there's only one left in the stack. And then Mark buys one. It's like, oh, well, great. My uh, secret objective is hosed. Well, let's uh, let's try to figure something else out. So in a two-player game, you can focus a lot more just on your stuff. A four-player game gets really reactive. And I just thought it was interesting how that dynamic shifted so what i'm hearing is you're saying competitively at three this game is trash (laughs) (laughs) yeah dump it in the lava (laughs) i also really like the art in this game you guys both mentioned the art on the previous games creature comfort has a very cutesy art style that i think we can all agree is really cutesy and vibrant 
for me, Valeria is really interesting because it's a fantasy style, but it's also kind of a whimsical, colorful fantasy. And I just, like, I would put this on Merchant's Cove for, like, my favorite fantasy art styles. Are you guys with me, or uh, am I alone on a hill here? I think the interesting thing about this, and granted, I haven't played a lot of those other games, but since it's, like, the same artist that has done art for all of the, um, what is that game? Because isn't it the same artist for Valeria that did... Like the Raiders Mark- of, mm. like all of those games. It does. I, I, I can't I, remember what the like Paladins or. It seems similar. I it, should yeah. say. So yeah. That's the only thing is that it seems a lot like those other games. Uh, I don't know if it's the same artist or not, but it seems very similar to that. I know they that's are- a bad thing. I, I think it's. I think it's good, but um, it just yeah. In that instance, it seems like those other fantasy games are very similar style to that yeah no the art checks out uh mark <laughs> did look it up at board game weekend uh, i forget what the other games were but the artist has worked on other games as well um any other strengths before we dive into the challenges of this game i think i've said all of mine uh one thing that i would point to as a weakness the base game like if you hear this like oh that sounds awesome i'm gonna go buy card kingdoms of valeria and uh the base game is relatively short. There aren't a lot of options. There's two of each number of citizens. There's five or six different monster types, and it was fun. I enjoyed the base game. We played the base game at Board Game Weekend. Uh, but for me, this game really shines as you layer on a lot of the expansions. Yeah. Um, and there's some truly great additions, but if you're going to go all in and buy all the stuff, you're over $200. Valeria Card Kingdoms is the most expensive board game I own, which... Feels kind of embarrassing having played something like Burn Cycle, like these big heavy <laughs> games with all like the miniatures or the chips and all this cool stuff to it. It's like I have a huge stack of cards and I like that stack of cards, but is that really the best way that I could have spent my limited board gaming budget? Like I'm, I don't know. I like the game a lot, but like, do I feel good about it being my most expensive board game? Not particularly. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean. You can't beat yourself up over your collection comparing it to someone else's, right? Everyone's budgets are different, yeah. and, and I think that's... But I want all your cool things, yeah, Adam! <laughs> I, I think that's an important thing in the hobby, though, to keep in mind with, like, people these days, and just, like, the cost of everything is going up. Like, I've seen myself cutting back more, and that's a whole nother tangent of, <laughs> of conversation we could dive into. I don't want to take away from Valeria here, but um, I just, you know... Don't beat yourself up yeah. over your collection comparing it to someone else's. I would say if you enjoy the game for what it is, don't look at the cost of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe look at it this way. Like, I have large games similar to Burn Cycle that are actually twice as much. I've paid four, yeah. $500 for a game, and I haven't played them yet. So my yeah. play-to-cost ratio is horrible And uh-huh. how many times have you played Valeria, right? So if you want to break it down, you could break down plays-to-cost and actually find out what yeah. you're getting for value-wise if you want to do it that way. I know some people do that. But yeah. in terms of weaknesses, really quickly, I guess, getting back to the topic at hand... Um, I think we're all pretty on a similar vein here. I think we all enjoyed it for what it is and and there's not a lot of weakness that we've found in this game specifically outside of maybe the base game getting a little vanilla after a while yeah because i think i think if you're going to buy it you would want to at least get one or two of the expansions maybe you could play the first game a little bit once it gets you know once it gets a little dry or a little stale then maybe pick up another one of the expansions or two of the expansions to see what it adds mix it in well, they took an interesting tack with the expansions, too, and I'm really interested to get your guys' thoughts on this. I mentioned the all-in price because, like, we played the base game, and I'm like, oh, I like this. Let's get all the expansions and talk about it on the podcast. So I did. I went, I put them all in the cart. I split it over 
the Daily Magic Game Store website, and then I found two of the expansions a little cheaper on another game website, so I kind of mixed and matched. So I got all the stuff. I paid the $200. I was like, oh, that's kind of a sticker price. But each one of those things is a lot cheaper. Like the big expansions, the co-op expansion and the pirate expansion, uh, were both, I think, $30. Uh, there were two smaller expansions that I think were $20 for the smaller boxes, the uh, dragons and I forget the other one off offhand. And then there were 15 card packs. Yeah. Each one basically introduced like a new mechanic, like the agents were a card pack or there's a new starter card pack or there's upgraded knights and peasants was another card pack. Do you guys like that sort of microtransaction format for the expansions where you can self-select the mechanics and additions that sound interesting? Or do you want the all-in, here's all the stuff for the higher price? Well, okay, so I guess comparing value for what you got out of what you were saying there, so it was like $30 for one of those really big expansions for this game, which adds a lot of replayability and a lot of things to it. Um, like talking about a game that we played last time, Terraforming Mars, like the extra one board that's double-sided was $25. <laughs> you know, the extra prelude cards and extra cards to mix into it was $25. So it's like, it feels like you're getting a lot more variety for your dollar out of what you purchase with Valyria, the Valyria Card Kingdoms items. I think it's nice too because you wouldn't, like you said, you went in to buy all of it because it's like, I really like this. I want to see what all this is. Um, but if somebody is just like, that's a little stale, I can buy a couple card packs for a few dollars and, oh, okay, now this mixes some of this up a little bit. Or I can spend $30 and add this thing that completely changes the game um, when I choose to play with it that way and you can mix some of the other stuff in there um, outside of that too. Um, I don't know. I think that's a good way to go about it because it gives you the option to do that. Um, I, I run into the problem when I'm like backing things on Kickstarter where it's like, Gotta get all the stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, I'm going to feel bad if I don't get the all-in. But that's actually starting to dissuade me from even buying games, too. Um, because that happened to me with the expansion for Aeon Trespass Odyssey, um, which is a standalone expansion. And it's like, by the time I was looking at what I was going to be spending, it was like over $500 to get the all-in for the expansion stuff. And it's just like, I've barely scratched the surface on the first game. Getting something that's basically like three times as large as the first game when I haven't even played that all the way and I haven't even gotten all of that yet. I just was like, I backed it for a dollar. I'll make a decision later on it. It's just like, it's just crazy amounts of money. I, I you know, And so at that point, that gets to be like ridiculous. I mean, it's um, a PlayStation 5 and like it's hard for right. me to put any board game on the same level as the PlayStation 5. Right. Adam, what are your thoughts on the expansion strategy? I have another point that I want to make, but I'll let you speak first. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit because I'm that... I'm that ridiculous guy, so we'll yeah. just leave it at that. You, you have to be listening to Joe's previous rant to understand why I'm ridiculous. But um, I, I have mixed feelings on it. How Valerius kind of handle it as they've kind of like slowly released expansions, I'm fine with that. But like to Joe's point as well, it drives me nuts when publishers utilize expansions on a crowdfunding campaign to gain more dollars when things should just be included. Yeah. My example is I've seen games where they have one war mechanic and if you buy the all in, you get this extra box that's going to cost you an extra $50, but then yeah. we're actually going to have the full war mechanic in which we're adding. Yeah. Or the other thing that drives me nuts, because I'm a solo player, and, and I know there's probably not a lot of people listening that are solo game players, but there is a large solo community out there. And when people make the solo game a stretch goal yeah. or a separate box add-on, it typically drives me nuts because they are not thinking 
of the game and the aspect of it being solo as well, it's more of a side thought. And typically when it's a side thought, it's not done as well. So kind of how it's handled, I guess, would be my answer. I'd almost have to assess each game on how they're handling it with, with different things. Or I guess I'm hearing all individual. in. <laughs> yeah, all in. I, I do have that tendency. But, um, yeah, it, it's kind of like an individual basis, I'd have to say, on how if it's handled properly, in my opinion, or not, I guess. Generally speaking, I like the all in. I like to know the total price and like get all the stuff at once. Uh, that being said, with Valeria, with each one of the small card packs introducing like a new element or a new mechanic, it would have been nice to buy one of those, play that, learn it, grok it in fullness, and then move on <laughs> to the next thing. Yeah. Because while Burns and I ran into doing the pirate expansion and all the other expansions, suddenly we had relics, we had agents, we had a bunch of other stuff, and it's like it was fun. I think yep. they're all great additions yep. to the game and add to the overall experience. But like. That first couple of playthroughs, just getting yeah. up to speed on everything, like. Well, and it was like it wasn't just trying to remember what all of the new stuff does. It we ran into the problem where we completely forgot like one of the base rules of the game, and we we're just like buying. We forgot. Domains. We okay. <laughs> Phoenix and I forgot completely, um, and so yeah, we bought a couple <laughs> domains that we didn't have all the symbols for, you know, but. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it drastically changed things at all. But yeah, it, it gets to be a lot to keep track of. And that was something I had down as one of my weaknesses too. Yeah, I'm thinking of another game that I adore, Quarriers. I bought the Quarrier, like, Quart Ultimate Edition with all the expansions. I haven't actually opened that yet because I don't know. I've played the base game many times. Uh -huh. We can open the base game. We can just play that, and it's great. But I haven't played any of the expansions. Like, oh, do I need to learn the rules for all four expansions to really get this? And it has actually actively hindered me from playing one of my favorite games that's crazy yeah also i mean i haven't had a group of like four together yeah which is when i tend to burst it out but valeria card kingdoms any other strengths or weaknesses before we get into our final thoughts and close the show down um i think one of the biggest weaknesses is it seems silly but the king desperately needs a score sheet Yes, or it does. And we made lots of jokes about this at Game Weekend because, like, Adam, part of all of your all-in goals, like, every game comes with a score pad now, and we never use them. <laughs> I know, yeah. It, it was kind of the running joke, I guess, yeah. because the one game as part of, like, the deluxe version came with a score pad, which is, <laughs> I feel like, kind of just a joke, honestly, uh -huh. like, from, from the publisher. But then, like, every game that we opened up that had a score pad, we're like, oh, this must be the deluxe version, <laughs> right? So, yeah, and then we got to Valeria, and it's like, it didn't have one. And, and I'm like thinking, to... Tom, you should have got the deluxe version of this. <laughs> but no, it, it is a game that could definitely use. There's so much you're adding up, pack. and you're trying to stack up all of like the five times or ten times chips for like your victory points. And there aren't enough and for like three enough players. For everybody to be yeah. doing that. And so yeah, basically we resorted to using our phones, which you can do. I hate doing like, that though. Something like this would be really good to have a score pad. You go across for what everybody makes off of one thing. Um, yeah, the game, I feel like, desperately needs that. And one quality of life thing, if you are going to go all in on Valeria Card Kingdom, uh, for the last two expansions for Crimson Seas and Darksworn, there is a neoprene double-sided playmat. I consider that a must-own because, like, it has the slots for, like, everything, including all of the expansion content. So if you're interested in playing this game and playing the big fancy expansions that dramatically change the game, make sure you get that playmat, too. I don't think it was crazy expensive. I think it was, like, 15 bucks through the Daily Magic web store. And yeah. just For neoprene nice. mat, that's not a bad price at all, um, especially because they're relatively decent-sized neoprene mats, too. So... Um, I think one of the other sort of big knocks I have um, 
Good news, everyone. Oh, they have one on their website. Someone, that you someone can pick created up? one on Board Game Geek. Oh, there you go. So if you have Valeria, just Google Valeria Card Kingdom's score sheet, and you will find it. Yeah, it definitely needs it. I'd highly recommend that. Then it's worth the it's worth the like few extra bucks of paper and toner that you yeah. need. To <laughs> Sorry, not to interrupt you. No, that's fine. Point it out. Uh, the one other kind of big weakness I found with the game after playing it quite a few times is I feel like some of the some of the dukes are much stronger than other dukes like of like how you can build up points or stack up points with them like um, for example a typical duke will have two types of characters on it you'll get three victory points for having like rogue symbols. dudes or symbols three type three victory points for having rogue dudes two for having helmet dudes and then uh you get one victory point for every set of three resources that you have yeah. other dukes will have like one victory point for every monster card you have or every domain that you built which ones did you f- find to be more powerful in your observation well the one i played last with the claw creatures the claw monsters like having the most of those and it was like three per it was just like okay yeah I'll just kill as many of these like little weak monsters as I possibly can and just amass victory points. I feel like those are easier um, because, I don't know, it just seems like that adds up a lot better than trying to cobble together. And it's like those aren't part of your engine. So it's like it feels like when you're seeking symbols, and granted you can get the symbols off of buying domains and things like that also, but it feels like when you're seeking symbols, you're pigeonholing yourself into certain numbers on dice and that always ends up making you feel a lot worse about your decision because then it's like, well, I had to buy all of these sixes and threes and eights because that's the symbols that I have. And I avoided buying sevens, but people keep rolling F and sevens. You know, it's just like, I think it, I think those parts of that ends up leading to a little bit more of just like, I feel like I have to pigeonhole myself to try to do better at the end instead of being able to determine, like, I want these types of things. And maybe I was putting too much stock in, like, the Dukes and that that was one of the most important things you wanted to do to score because of just the sheer amount of victory points they would give you. Um, But it just felt like certain ones were a bit stronger or easier to accomplish than others without hindering yourself in a different way. So so on that, so are you kind of saying, like, the monster get killing ones because you have more control over that not like limiting your engine are stronger is that what you're saying i feel like they are so that's really interesting i feel like it's the opposite for me because i played one that was monster one that was was hero based or whatever and then like when i was looking at it the second time i had a little better understanding of the game and i felt that the the hero one is more powerful because a i'm able to build my engine and score victory points not just killing the monsters and then b you're also able to trigger those same icons off of domains where right. the creatures have different icons, right? Right. So I feel like I was able to double down. Now, you've played it more than I have, so maybe my opinion would have changed, but I, from yeah. the two plays that I played with that specifically, I felt it was the opposite. See, for me, it, it just felt like the symbols always were that much more like hindering on like what numbers you wanted to expand, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like when you're locked into certain ones, and especially like the holy symbol... Where it's like, those are usually like the ones and the like nines and tens. Not usually, always. Yeah, and so it's like, (laughs) if that's like your symbol, you're getting these dudes that don't always roll a lot, too. And so it's like, you feel like you're putting yourself in a spot that, 
I don't know. And, and maybe it's just all a construct in my head because of how the games worked out when I played as those ones versus other ones. Maybe it's like a play style thing. Um, it could be, but it just seems like certain ones tend to be more tricky. And the fact that you get two and you have to pick one at the beginning of the game, it like it really starts to pigeonhole your decisions as to, okay, well, this is what I have to try to focus on. I'll see if I can make it work. And it's interesting in your last game because you were focused on monsters, but specifically the lower tier monsters. Yeah. You benefited from playing with me because I tend to get fixated on my thing and do yeah. what I want to do. And I had nothing to do with monsters. I was trying to sail, gather those resources, and buy as much stuff as I could with those resources. So like, I wasn't competing with you for monsters at all. Like, yeah. I, I knew that I could steal a monster from you at some point. So like, I was just waiting for you to slay like a boss monster. And mm-hmm. then I randomly took a monster from you and got one of the low-level ones, which hindered you to a degree, but not yeah. as much as I wanted. Yeah. Uh, but you also got to double down because not only did you get your Duke victory points for monsters, but you also got the victory points on the monsters, on the themselves. monsters themselves. Yeah, yeah, that was valuable. Yeah, because I think that's the other aspect of it too. Um, whereas if it's like if you want to focus on getting certain resources, but hey, those aren't the symbols that your Duke has. Where you're like, okay, well, I either gotta play the way I want to play, or I have to play towards what the Duke is. Um, and so that that's where it just sort of feels like. It's a little bit hindering depending upon which one you get, but maybe you don't have to put a lot of stock in that and just try to get victory points the way you want to anyway, and you'll be okay. But I feel like in order to win, you have to really maximize that as well as a lot of your other aspects. So, Brinsey, I feel like you went on a journey on this game with me because I think the first playthrough, you were openly hostile towards it. You did not seem to enjoy our first playthrough. We played it twice, and then yeah. we played it twice more at Board Game Weekend. Then you came over and played the expansion stuff with me one yeah. time, and then we played the co-op thing this morning. Is it safe to say that your opinions changed from that first playthrough? So the first game we played of it, like I was like, this sucks. Um, because I could tell you had certain ones and like that got rolled over and over and over again. It was sevens, the sevens. And it was just like, I had a seven, I got some benefit on it, but you got triple the benefit off of it. Yeah. I had rogue dudes too. So like it all played into my Duke card, which is why I specifically bought those. Right. And then it's like the ones I was focusing on didn't really get rolled that much. And so that's maybe that's what rolled into that opinion of that aspect of it too. Uh, you know, it's very possible. The second game, it felt like I had a lot more control over, like how I could focus and how I could do things. Um, and so, yeah. And, and, and so yeah, it definitely changed. Like after that first game, I was just like, okay, maybe I'm just not going to like this game. And then when we played the second game, I was like, okay, now, now I can kind of get how this, how this seems to work uh, a little bit more. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I, and I think I would still, I'd play the game. Like if you ever said, Hey, let's play Valeria. I'm like, eh, yeah, I'll play Valeria. Yeah. Heck yeah. That's fun. So play Valeria. And now there's lots of different, different ways that we can play it, which is even, even more cool. Yeah. Adam, your final thoughts on Valeria card kingdom. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a great game. I think people have picked up on that from us kind of saying <laughs> a lot of great things about it. Um, I guess kind of in perspective, it's very similar to another game I have called Space Base. It has the same like dice rolling mechanic where you're able to trigger off someone else's turn. So it's it's nice that you're keeping people engaged. And, and I definitely feel like had I maybe demoed this game at a convention earlier or anything like that, it would have been one like an easy pickup for me. But now that I have another comparable game, it's kind of like, well, Tom has it, so I can always like <laughs> yeah. just convince him to bring it if I you know yeah. for a game session while I keep Space Base type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's great, and it, it would have been an easy purchase for me you know pre-space base yeah it's tons of fun like i i i expounded about it a lot already i think it's tons of fun i think people would enjoy playing it you should play it yeah i agree uh my wife likes playing with me i think it's i think it's a great option for 
anyone really uh just surprising that it's the most expensive game that i own (laughs) before we wrap up let's share just one final thought about how we feel about addressing each one of these games off of our shelf of shame adam we played creature comforts off of your shelf final thought on just the experience of finally getting this game to the table and sharing it with us he's already sold it yeah it's gone (laughs) i found someone online already while we're recording uh no it's good to get games off i have a very large shelf of shame at this point so it felt kind of great to get off like games off of that shelf per se in the hypothetical shelf of shame um but it's always good too when you can get a game off of that and you like it and you enjoy it and you find that like it fills a niche for you or or whatever your board game goal is right Mm -hmm. that like for me this filled a niche that i felt like I, I wanted it to fill, so it's not something like, oh, well, let's add that to the call of the pile <laughs> of Adam's collection. So, no, it, it was it was great, and, you know, um, there's a lot of great games played at that game weekend, so yeah. it, was, it was a good weekend. So am I supposed to talk about my specific game? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm really glad that we got a chance to play Cleos. Uh, I'm looking forward to playing it again. Now, like, level setting my mindset for what I'm going to be, be able to expect in the game will maybe make me get less frustrated like I got in that second game. Um, and, um, I, you know, I can already kind of get an idea of, like, the types of groups that would enjoy playing it and that I would want to play it with. Um, you know, getting together with a lot of, like, guys that I do wargaming with. And so I feel like that could be kind of a fun thing to mix in with that group. Um you know, and just sort of see what they think about it. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to playing it again. I'm glad I finally got it to the table, even though I've had it for over, what, two years maybe now? At least a year and a half, so. Yeah, I feel very similar about Valeria. It was a gift to me for my wife years ago, and we just never gotten around to playing it. As we started making babies, we found that our gaming time significantly <laughs> decreased. What? Yeah, it's wild, but uh, in the last couple of months, we've committed to a weekly board gaming night, and I think Valeria is going to be one that regularly cycles to the table. It's just a great game. That's going to do it for our Shelf of Shame episode. Next month, we get good with Souls-inspired episode. We're breaking down Elden Ring, Mernsey's favorite game of all time, and the Dark Souls (laughs) board game. Mernsey, you're not enjoying Elden Ring. Um... So I Is this show going to be awful for you? I wouldn't say that I'm not enjoying it. There's aspects of the game that I thoroughly enjoy. There's just aspects of the game that I have grown to loathe. And by the time we by the time we record on it, may may swing a different direction or may never get past that. And on the other end of the spectrum, we've got Brian, who is on like his third or fourth playthrough of the game and absolutely devoured and loved it. I am firmly planted in the middle. I think there's a lot of great things in Elden Ring, and I'm really excited to get the Dark Souls board game to the table. I've been trying to work that into a show for a couple of years, and we're finally going to do it. That works. Yeah. Get good, son. Thank I'm you. I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> If my my 10-ish hours of the game so far, anything to be said, I'm probably not going to. Go down to that island, man. I gave you a map. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Outside is Overrated. Please support our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Adam at Ox's Auditorium on Instagram and for the Hobbybox Joe Burns at Hobbybox Burns on Twitter and twitch.tv slash Hobbybox Burns. I'm Thompson Logic at Thompson Logic OIO. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids.